Hello, friends. Welcome back to episode three of our book club. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to recap, we are reading I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. So far, last week, we read chapters 10 through 30, I believe. So um, this week, we are covering 31 through 55. And that takes us through the what's considered before yeah of i think we've talked about this the before her mom passes away as we know from the book right um right right but so that'll send us on for next week to really dig into what they call the after so which i also noticed when i was reading this week this is like somewhat unrelated but i also noticed that the after appears like it's going to be much shorter oh do you see, if you look oh, at the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it looks like we're going to have less. Less total pages? Yeah. Well, that'll know. be good. I didn't actually do the math on it, but it, like, when you hold it up. So when I you, like, side, look at the number of pages in each section. Right. Yeah. It's also, again, we've if you're new, welcome. Um, we have our previous episodes posted um, we are doing book club throughout the month of February, so you're welcome to pop in on this episode or join the others. If you haven't read the book yet, feel free to read and come back or however you like it. I like to be told things before I read them. I <laughs> love spoilers, but I know a lot of people don't, so there's that. One thing I do we've talked about is like I feel like so accomplished when it's like, yeah, I've read 30 chapters. And I'm still going to hold on and cling to that. Right. But it's nice that the chapters are, like, usually just a couple pages. And they're... One of them in this section was, like, half of a page, <laughs> almost. Like, one of them was super short. And I love how she separates them into chapters because it feels like every chapter is its own separate event. Right. Something right. mean of a meaningful event that's separate from the last. Sometimes it ties into something that happened in the last chapter, but some of these are just you get the feeling like happened at different times, maybe. So um I've enjoyed knowing that like, ooh, this new chapter, like, what's gonna be juicy about it? You know what? Yeah, there's never a time where I feel like, oh, I have you have to get through the first X amount of chapters before and you really, it, yeah, yeah. I feel like she's given us some good, especially in like last week. We really got to a lot of good stuff. So, yeah. Um, with that, let's go ahead and dive in. Do you want to go first? Sure. Okay. Um, so thirty-one. What we've been doing is just kind of recapping each chapter and just kind of sharing our thoughts as we go. So thirty-one. Well, I guess we should say thirty. We left off. Last week, um, she finally got her big break in iCarly, and she's developing a friendship with Miranda, her co-star, um, and so that's kind of where we left off. So 31, she takes us through her standing in the dressing room and feeling uncomfortable and anxious, and um, her mom and the wardrobe, I think, assistant says, then come on out, we need to see it. Um, we'll just get one picture and then you'll be good to go. So she says she steps out. She hates the feeling. She feels ashamed and it just feels really sexual to her. And they assure her, you look great. 
all these things. Um, but she says, I worry that great means sexual. I fold my arms across my body to try and cover it up more. I hunch my shoulders over like a little cave to protect me. I don't want to look sexual. I want to look like a child. So you kind of takes you from, okay, she's a child actress and now she's kind of going into more. And you find out essentially what she's talking about. She's wearing a bikini and they're wanting to take pictures for wardrobe and all the things to send to directors to figure out what they want her to wear. And she's just really uncomfortable. And she's talked about before in previous chapters how she's feared growing up because she wants to stay a child for many reasons um, being her, her mother, you know, is that's what her mother wants. And she wants to appease her mother. And now she's kind of in a situation where she's growing up and, um, taking on roles where she's being a little bit more sexualized. Right. Um, so really that is chapter 31, just taking through how she does it. She doesn't want to do it, but she ends up doing it to appease obviously her mom and the wardrobe assistant and all that stuff. And she's worried about being sexualized, looking too sexual. That's 31 thoughts. Anything? I mean, yeah, I was a little torn with this one because, because on one hand I understand that they cast for a certain role and the director has, and the, and the wardrobe and the costume designers and everybody has, an idea in mind where this character should be in a bikini, right? And on one hand, it's like I understand that it is the business. And I struggled with this in last week's section, too. It's like it is a business. On the other hand, I understand where she's young and she she doesn't want to wear a bikini and she wants the one piece. And I think she even said, is this also where she says, or am I skipping ahead, where she says what she would rather wear is the one piece with, like, board shorts. Like, she really wants to be more covered up. Yeah. Is that in this part, or am I, I skipping ahead? I don't know that ahead? it's in that part. I'm okay, trying to I'm going to skip ahead there. But it gives you a good um, idea of what, like, she's really outside of comfort zone. Right. And so it's like, I think you also need to take into consideration what that child wants, while at the same time trying to find that balance of it is a business. Yes. You and know? I, and one thing I wanted to point out, too, is so she mentions the creator, as she calls him. Um, and she never says his name. It goes on to say, like, the creator, the creator. And she talks about how the creator is the one who has to sign off on this. And the creator asked for a bikini. So the wardrobe assistant has to follow his direction. And he wants the option. So they have to give them to him. Um, but you get the feeling. So it says here, mom says um, she's heard rumblings from crew members that he, meaning the creator, has got a hair trigger temper and to, quote, be sure not to get on his bad side. So again, what does she do? She's uncomfortable. She kind of, you know, doesn't set that boundary. And she's a child, right? Like, you can't expect her to. But again, trying to appease people. And here, the creator becomes one of them. Okay, so then 32 opens with her basically describing... Well, she actually says, I'll just read the first part. She actually says, our lips are touching. He's moving his mouth around a bit, but I can't move mine. I'm frozen. His eyes are closed. Mine aren't. Mine are wide open staring at him. It's so odd staring at a person while your faces are touching. I don't like it. I can smell his hair gel. And this chapter is where she goes into what is essentially twofold. One, her first ever kiss. 
and also her first ever on-screen kiss. And she basically says that she feels like her body is stiff and the creator is telling her that she needs to move her face around and she is getting frustrated because she feels like her first kiss shouldn't have to be on screen and she shouldn't have to force it just for her career. She's embarrassed by this. Her mom has been clear that boys are a waste of time and will only disappoint her. However, now she needs to be kissing this boy on screen. And she says that the creator is being very clear about what he wants and moving her face around and moving her her body a certain way. And she just doesn't feel like any of it is natural. And the creator keeps yelling, cut and restart and go again. And then she even goes as far as to describe a part where the, the creator yells, cut. And basically the set goes silent. And he comes up and just very clearly yells, Jeanette, period, more, period, head, period, movement, period. And then yells, why aren't we rolling? And turns around. And she says she goes, she goes at it again. And she does it, she does it again. And she does it again. And she does it again. And she ends the chapter by saying, and just like that, my first kiss is over with. And my second and my third and my fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh, technically, since we did seven takes. And so you basically go through this chapter hearing how frustrated she is with the fact that her first kiss is happening on screen with so many people watching. She's embarrassed and with the creator giving so many instructions as to how he would like for this scene to look. And she does say, or am I skipping ahead? Oh, no, she does say it's with her co-star, Nathan, who she considers somewhat of a friend and considers basically someone who she can trust. But she also says, goes on to say that it's apparent to her that Nathan is far more comfortable with this than what she is. And yeah. that he doesn't appear to be struggling the way that she is with the fact that it's on screen. Yeah. Thoughts. So maybe it wasn't his first kiss. I just can't imagine having your first kiss in that environment. And like how you said at the end, her first, her second, her third. Like, I'm just so uncomfortable. I'm sure it had to be. And I mean, I don't know. I feel like it's just a shame that you look back. No offense to him. But like that your first kiss was not someone and you know what i mean like yeah. not like you know a what's funny thing. and not to like go off on a tangent here but you know what's funny is when i was reading this chapter all i could think of was a jennifer lawrence interview that i watched one time do you know who jennifer lawrence is yeah she played like katniss everdeen in the hunger games and she was in a lot of other movies but she i was watching her do an interview the one time was it american hustle or i think it, i think it was american hustle she had her first sex scene in that movie. And I think it was American Hustle. I hope I'm right about that. I might be wrong. But she was doing an interview. I think it was on Conan. And she was talking about how she had to film her first sex scene. And she was, like, super nervous about it. And she was like, I am not comfortable with this. And I am just not. like. And she knew it was coming. She knew when she took the role that this was a part of the script. Like, everybody was very upfront with her. Like, it was not a surprise. No, nothing was, like, sprung on her. She knew, but she was like, I've been dreading it and dreading it and dreading it. And she said, I just remember calling my brothers, because she has two brothers, and calling my brothers and being like, what am I supposed to do? This is tomorrow, and I'm not ready, and I don't want to do this, and I'm not comfortable. And 
She said, my brothers do what any good brothers do. And they sent me a bottle of, I think it was whiskey or something. And she was like, I drank the whole bottle. Oh, my God. I went in absolutely shit-faced, was drunk out of my mind, did the sex scene. I have very little memory of it. And she said, and then I just started bawling on set and was like, I want my mom. And she said, and so then my mom showed up and she said, I went to dinner. And I spent the night with my mom. And she was like, and it was totally fine. But all I could think of was Jennifer Lawrence's interview being like, I hated it, and I was nervous, and it was this, and it was that, and it was whatever. And so I drank a whole bottle of alcohol, and then I said, I want my mom. My mom showed up. And so I just kept thinking, I'm like, she needs to drink a bottle of alcohol. And then you go, but this is a kid we were talking about this time. Yeah, is that even good? You know. (laughs) Like, maybe there's another way we can work through that. I mean. And also, just because, like, have you ever done this where, like, you know this is part of what you're saying yes to? Like, you know, it's part of it. Maybe it's something that makes you uncomfortable, but you're like, you know what? I can work toward that. I'm confident saying yes today, knowing that I can, I can work toward that and be fine. And then that day comes and you're like, oh my God, I'm not ready. Like, I've totally been there. So I can not even imagine. Cause it's like, oh, well, she knew what was going to be. It's like, yeah, I'm sure she did. And she just felt like it was going to be fine at that point. And here that day has come and it is not feeling fine. Right. Right. Chris Lane. (laughs) <laughs> yes if you know you know um i mean i've also been there too but that was the right, first right. thing that came to mind yeah, yeah where i'm like yeah I'm, I'm totally ready and then it's like oh i'm not ready no nope. i've also been there too though i'm just giving you crap i know i have a hair in my mouth hold on <laughs> oh got it oh was that my hair i don't think so ew oh my god <laughs> it might have been a fuzz i don't know i don't want to look 33 um, so this takes us to the creator asks Jeanette and Deb, her mom, out to lunch. And her mom on the way is, like, really hyping her up. Like, I really think he's going to give you a spinoff. I think that's what this is going to be about. And she is, again, giving her all these tips. Make sure you smile a lot with teeth. When you don't smile with your teeth, it looks like you're forlorn. <laughs> that makes me laugh. Um, she said, don't forget to act really interested in whatever he says. Like, being... That show mom, I guess, that's like, do this, do this, like, given all the tips. Um, and then she says, again, something that makes me laugh, pulling the cancer card. And one of us should bring up my cancer, too, to really get him on our side. I can take that if you'd like. That part got me. <laughs> Any chance this woman has to bring up that she is has breast cancer or had it is just take a drink every time. Deb reminds us, and we are not liable right. for what happens <laughs> right. to you. <laughs> right. Okay. So they sit down to lunch. He, the creator, as she calls him, you know, warm welcome to them. The mom beams. She's so excited. She thinks a lot of this creator. And, of course, he's hyping up Jeanette. He says, you act circles around them. Um, meaning other actors he's worked with. And he says, you could win an Oscar someday. And Jeanette says, this is how the conversations with the creator start is he'll give you all these compliments, but you'll notice he'll undercut other people. Um, But she says his approval means a lot to me because she recognizes that he's the reason she says that my family and I don't have to worry about money anymore. Um, Or that, you know, she's a series regular on the TV show. Like, she credits him with a lot of that. But she also says she wonders if he's trying to pit her against other people. Like, she can sense that sometimes the compliments are, again, digs at other people. Um, Let's see. 
And she, she does note that. So she says, I feel like the creator has two distinct sides. One is generous and over-the-top complimentary. He can make anyone feel like the most important person in the world. Um, and then she says, the other side is mean-spirited, controlling, and terrifying. He can tear you down and humiliate you. I've seen him do this when he fired a six-year-old on the spot for messing up a few lines on a rehearsal day. So Jekyll, Meet Hyde kind of vibes to him. And so she says, that's why I've learned, like, I can't let the compliments get to my head because I can't, like, I can't also let, on the opposite, let them tear me down. Like, I've got to kind of navigate these waters carefully. Um, so she says the order or the creator ordered main courses for them, something with lobster, pasta with meat and a flatbread. And she knows her mom won't approve. But she also doesn't want the creator to be offended. So she says, I just basically pick around the food, trying to basically make it look like I'm eating, but then not so I can make the creator happy and make my mom happy. And then he gets to the part where he asks, basically, he says, let me ask you a question. How do you like being recognized, being famous? And she doesn't answer. Deb answers naturally and says, oh, she loves it. Absolutely loves it. And they adore her, too. They always say she's their favorite character. All right, Deb. I mean, I really did like Sam, I was going to say, too. it's hard because I did like Sam. I really did, too. But, like, let's be a little, let's be humble here. Humility is important. Um, but it's then that it's verified. He says, hey, I'm looking at doing another show, a spinoff. It would star you as the main character called Just Puckett, which would be Just Puckett is Sam Puckett, her character on the show. But he basically says it won't happen for a while yet because iCarly is doing so well that that's like priority. So they'll have to wait a couple of years. But he says, um, if you listen to me, take my advice and let me guide you. I promise you, I will give you your own show. And of course, Deb is so excited. Notice Deb, Deb is the one excited. I mean, like. Oh, 100%. I think to her, she's thinking of like. Wow, my mom's happy. Like, is this what I want? Like, you can just get tones of this isn't, this acting isn't her choice. Like, this is not something she aspired to do. Um, so let's see. Oh, she says, it makes me nervous, though. I'm concerned. The creator was very clear that his offer had a contingent. Me listening to him, taking his advice and letting him guide me. And even though part of me appreciates the creator, a part of me is scared of him. And the idea that I'll have to do everything he wants is intimidating to me. But her mom, again, assures her, aren't you, you know, she says, why don't you seem happier? And of course she lies. She says, I'm happy. I lie. Very happy. 33. That was it. What do you think? I don't. My thoughts remain the same. I feel like chapter to chapter. This is Deb's world. We're just all living in it. Mm -hmm. She is the main character. We are all just background supporting roles, helping her live her dream. And the creator, I'm agree. excited to find out, dig more into him because he seems like an interesting guy. I agree. I agree. I would be so curious, and I know she doesn't name him, but I would be so curious if the creator ever wrote a book 
Ooh. what the creator's side of all of this would be. True. They always say there's two sides to the story and then there's the truth. Right. And I'm not discrediting Jeanette McCurdy's version and I'm not belittling the way that she felt at all. But I would be so curious in some of these scenarios. You know, what did the creator think of Deb? <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, that w- I would just be curious. Yeah. Okay, so then in 34... Jeanette is now 16, and she's been on iCarly for three years. And she said that she starts off by saying that her friendship with Miranda has grown and has become a source of camaraderie and emotional support. She says she's friends with the rest of the cast, too, but Miranda's different. She says they Skype on the weekends and see movies after work, which her mom now joins her on. Her mom always goes. Which is hilarious because do we all remember Deb complaining about the price of the movie tickets? What did she say? I don't care how surround the sound. Yeah. Well, now she loves it when she doesn't have to pay for it, right? Yeah, now she loves it when she doesn't have to pay for it. And she even says, quote, their sound is very surrounding. <laughs> she now has eaten her words. Yeah, as if that makes up for it. Um, but anyway, so then Jeanette goes on to say that more important than her friendship with Miranda is the fact that her mom is no longer stressed about bills or her body, which were the two biggest things that her mom was always stressed about. Although she does say that her mom does continue to make comments about the size of her paycheck. And even at one point says, um, compared to network TV, it's jelly beans, jelly beans, and no residuals either with Nickelodeon. Or should I say nickel and dime Elodian? <laughs> Which I did think, like, I was surprised to hear that she didn't get residuals on um, yeah, I iCarly. Especially like, since, like, I'm sure they replay that stuff a lot. Which I also wonder, well, they do. I know they do. And now you have the spinoff. Or not the spinoff, but, like, the reboot. And I do wonder, like, I wonder if Miranda got residuals. Like, I wonder if that was, was, it, like, an, the was it an agent problem. Yeah. That could be. I'm not taking a shot at her agent, but... Like, I know that a lot of times, like, it's up to you to, like, fight for that in your contract. And, like, I've heard of that before where, like, some of the cast gets them and some do not and, like, whatever. And I'm and so sure the network go, isn't going to, like, willy-nilly just be like, yeah, everyone gets, you know. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. you need to know to push back for that. Then I'm like, I just would be curious. Um. Anyway, she also then says that her mom still monitors her lunches, but that she now lets her eat on set. She says that her dinners still are mostly iceberg lettuce with dressing spray and ripped up pieces of low-calorie bologna, but it's okay now because Deb will give her two Smart Ones cookies for dessert now. She also now gets to eat breakfast, which Deb makes for her, but she never imagined that this would happen. She said she'll usually, Deb will put 2% milk on top of honeycomb cereal, 2% not non-fat, because that's a huge deal. I know, my heart just hurts for her. I'm like, oh. And sure, honeycomb cereal is still, quote, one of the lowest calorie breakfast cereals per gram, as Deb says. But this is crazy. I've never seen her support eating like this, Jeanette says. And then she does go on to say that she is curious to know that if her or to know if her mom is only letting her eat breakfast because Miranda and Nathan eat breakfast in their joint school room. And it might look weird if she doesn't. But it kind of sounds like Jeanette here is sort of like, but a win's a win. Like, I'm not going to complain. Like, I'm being allowed to eat. No matter what the motive, why it motivated her to do it, she's just happy that it did. Yeah. So then she says, again, she's 16 now, and so her body started to change. She's noticing that her skin is breaking out, and she used to hate wearing makeup, but now she wants to wear it just to hide behind it. And then she also says that one day she overheard one of 
her co-star's mom making fun of her hairy legs to her co-star and that ever since her mom shaves her legs for her. Because again, she's 16, but Deb still showers her. Then she goes on in this chapter to say that the show has progressively grown in popularity. They're starting to throw around terms like cultural phenomenon and global sensation. She's going on shows like Good Morning America and The Today Show. But that she's starting to recognize that it comes at a price because, for example, Disneyland, her favorite place, is a place that she can no longer go to because when she goes, people recognize her, they stop her, make a big commotion, they yell her character's name, Sam, you know, quotes from the show. Um, and that basically she's unimpressed by the people and even irritated with them at times. Um that they and irritated with the fact that they approach her like they own her. Like she's this commodity that they can just take advantage of. And she even goes on to say, quote, I didn't choose this life. Mom did. So then she gets into a little bit more about her anxiety and how she's starting to recognize that her anxiety is causing her to be somewhat of a people pleaser and that it's causing her to take the picture, sign the autograph, say it's a good one. Um, but that underneath it all, she really is afraid to leave her house, like to leave and to go out into public and to basically put herself into a position where people may stop her on the street. And part of that is because Deb has her practicing so hard, even when she's at home, Deb has her practicing her autograph and saying things like it's getting sloppy, little C, big C, U-R-D-Y. They need to be able to read every single letter. And so even when she's at home, Deb has her practicing autographs and all the things. And so then she goes on to say that um, basically, and I was interested, I mean, it doesn't shock me, but this part was interesting to me where her, where she says that for kids who start on kids TV, it's considered a career death sentence. That basically mm-hmm. if you're, if you're a child actor who starts off on network television or movie, you have an easier path than if you're a child actor who starts out on kids TV, which on one hand, I guess I know. Like, we've all heard the horror stories of, like, the kid, you know, the child star that didn't make it, you know, like, on network TV or make it in the movies or had a harder time. But I was also, like, surprised to know that those child actors on kids TV understand, like, that's a career. Death, yeah, that they're, like, like aware. That they're yeah. aware of that. And I think, is it more so because, like, it's hard for them to shake that, like, Miley Cyrus. Like, I remember on Hannah Montana. Everyone was like, oh, my gosh, she's Hannah Montana. She can't be this, like, person who's now right. grown up and has a right. whole other side. Like, she's grown out of that. Like, is that part of that, right. too? Well, and that's what she says, is that there's something about the one-dimensional, over-glossy image combined with the extent of the public recognition of that image that makes it nearly impossible to overcome. The second the child star tries to outgrow and break free from their image, they become bait for the media. Highly publicized is rebellious, troubled, and tortured when all they're trying to do is grow. Growing is wobbly and full of mistakes, especially as a teenager. Mistakes that you certainly don't want to make in the public eye, let alone be known for the rest of your life. But that's what happens when you're a child star. Child stardom is a trap, a dead end, and I can't, and I can see that even if mommy can't. Which I also, okay, I know I'm really like nitpicking here, but again, she writes each chapter from the perspective of if she were writing it at that age. Yeah. And this is nothing against, you know, children who do this and whatever, but there aren't many 16-year-olds I know who still refer to them as mommy. Yes, I agree. Which I feel like is worth noting, too, because I know that earlier in the book it was a thing where 
she had started to say mom or something and Deb kind of corrected her and was like, it's mommy and it's daddy. And it's, you know, again, Deb wants her to stay this young, sweet, innocent child, you know? And so I think that's worth noting too. Um, so then she kind of ends this chapter by basically saying that she's starting to realize that fame is putting a wedge between her and her mom. She feels robbed and exploited and feels like she didn't get to have a childhood and that basically Deb's happiness has come at the cost of hers. And then she says, I look at her, sometimes I look at her and I just hate her. And then I hate myself for feeling that way. I tell myself I'm ungrateful. I'm worthless without her. She's everything to me. Then I swallow that feeling I wish I hadn't had. Tell her I love you so much, mommy. And I move on, pretending that it never happened. And then she ends the chapter by basically saying, um, I've pretended for my job for so long and for my mom for so long. And now I'm starting to think I'm pretending for myself, too. She's starting to resent her mom. She's starting to resent her mom. And this, I feel like this is the first time we've started to see. I mean, we knew it was coming, right? With the title of the book. But I feel like this is the first time we're starting to see her go. I'm basically having, I'm basically being forced to do these things because of mom. And I'm finally old enough to recognize that. Yeah. That this is the life that she wanted, not that I wanted. Yeah. And she's pretending for herself, too. Right. She's. Well, and because, again, I think just like earlier, I mean, as much as she's starting to resent her mom, I think there's still that part of her that's like, this is my person. Right. Who wants to admit that you know, mom like, might be. Right. Well, and I think it's one of those things, too, where she goes, you know, the second I push back and I quit and I decide I'm done with this. I lose that person, you know, I think is the fear too, is like, it's been drilled into her that she needs to please mom. Or yeah. And the time she has said, Oh, I don't like acting or has maybe been vocal. It's been such a huge thing. Her mom like gaslights the heck out of her. Right. Oh, you love it. Or sobs and guilt trips her. And so we see, I think that continued theme throughout of being afraid of, how her mom will react right and that goes into 35 um so we know that church is a source of like an outlet for her it's a source of kind of getting away and i think it was what did she say? like three hours of like something else besides like her home life and her responsibilities so she opens up 35 and says it's a sunday morning and everyone else in the house is asleep I reheat the mug of mom's favorite raspberry royal tea that I first made an hour ago and wake her with it. Um, so she's eyeing the clock, debating whether or not to try and wake her up faster because they're going to be late for church. And she's, again, waking up mommy, which, again, now that you said that, right. a odd. We have to leave for church in 20 minutes or we won't make it in time. Hmm, mom groans more aggressively. And she basically asks her mom, do you not want to go? To which her mom says, no, I'm too tired. I've worked too hard lately. So she then says in her mind, she doesn't say to her mom, but she's thinking in this dialogue, I'm tired too. I've worked hard lately too. I don't think I've worked a lot harder than mom. Or she says, I actually think I've worked a lot harder than mom has. And then I feel guilty for thinking this. So she goes, she does drive me to and from work, which has to be tiring a part of her things, but yeah, I do homework on the drive plus memorize lines, then spend 10 hours on set rehearsing and performing 
and being on under bright lights and intense pressure while she sits up in my dressing room, pursing woman's world and gossiping with my co-star's moms. The other part of me thinks. So she's conflicted. I think you can sense her resentment of her mom having an excuse of being too tired. And here she's like, really? You're talking to me about tired? You just get that sense. She's starting to be resentful. Um, so she says they haven't been in church in six months, which has been their longest church ever. And she's concerned. But when she's brought it up to mom, mom assures her, we'll definitely go back someday when things settle down. Raise your hand if you've said that. We'll meet up. We'll have lunch when things settle down. Yeah, it doesn't happen. <laughs> um, and then when, you know, other times when she's brought it up, it, um, she says specifically one time her mom started screaming and it was gaslighting her and saying she was losing control of the steering wheel and that I was causing her tremendous stress that was putting both of them in danger. Way to gaslight Deb. Bravo. Um, but she says, as I'm, you know, in this moment, looking down, I'm starting to accept that our church days may be behind us and that Michaela, that first rate Mormon that we talked about in previous chapter, who basically told her like, oh, you got the assistant job because you're second rate, meaning, or I forget what they call it, but basically they don't think you'll be here for the long haul. And she's starting to realize, you know what? Kayla just might be right. Um, so she says at the end, maybe people go to church because they want things from God and they keep going while they're wishing and yearning. But once they get those things, they realize they don't need church anymore. Who needs God when you've got clear mammograms and a series regular role on Nickelodeon, she says. Thoughts? I feel bad for her because I know that church was kind of her outlet and this was an important thing for her. I'm not surprised, though, either. I mean, I do think it's one of those things where her mom aside, her relationship with her mom aside, like all the things, you do get busy. Yeah. And to commit to being at church every week is a commitment. And more power to you to the people who can make that happen. But sometimes it is an unintentional, like, I would love to be going, but the schedule just doesn't work. Do you know what I mean? Like, I do think that's a valid. Yeah, I just feel bad for her because it was something that is Yeah, I feel horrible for her because it was an outlet for her. But I'm not surprised. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay, so then 36 starts with her and her mom having a quick lunch with her manager, Susan, and then they're walking back to set. And her mom, or she's explaining to her mom that she has a stomach ache and she's not feeling well. And her mom's reaction to this is basically to order her to, quote, smile for the paparazzi. And she says even though she didn't even spot them and her mom spotted them first, she says that she throws a big smile on her face and that's what counts. Flash, flash, flash. The light hurts my eyes. This part got me too. Then she says, hi, Glenn. Mom shouts to a paparazzo like he's her neighbor. Hi, Deb. Glenn, Glenn says as he walks backward while snapping more photos. Oh, I'm shocked that, that mom doesn't seem aware of how strange this whole interaction is. Which on one hand is a bizarre interaction. But on the other, I'm not at all shocked that Deb doesn't find that weird. Right. She's probably like, like calling the path. Like, hey, right, we'll be like, on this street corner. Right. She's arranging it. So then she says they get back to Nickelodeon Studios and... 
The smile immediately falls off her face. They race into the dressing room so she can change into her wardrobe for the next scene. But she goes to the bathroom quick beforehand. And that's when she sees blood on her underwear. She's immediately dizzy. She's not sure what it is. She thinks it might be her period. And then she starts basically recounting a memory from, uh, she thinks like six years ago when she was 10, where her neighbor Teresa was basically telling her that she had gotten her period. And at first, Jeanette thought that she meant the period at the end of a sentence. And Teresa says, not that period. And then she says, well, okay, I know what a period is. It's the period in time. And Teresa says, no, not that one. So then again, Jeanette's like, oh, a a class period, like at school. Finally, Teresa explains what she's referring to and then says that when she got her first period, all the women in her family took her out to dinner to celebrate, which has Jeanette super confused because why would you want to celebrate this or what are you celebrating? She's not really getting it. And Teresa finally says to celebrate becoming one of them, becoming a woman And she says, Jeanette basically says that the way that Teresa said it led her to believe that this was something Teresa had been waiting for her whole life. And like it was some, quote, romantic, incredible, alluring thing, becoming a woman, which had her super confused. And she said she'd always envied things in Teresa's life, like her pinball machine, her Barbies, especially the ones with the short hair, because Deb would never let her have Barbies with short hair because that might make Jeanette want to cut her hair. And then she says, and yes, even a trip to this hometown buffet, a restaurant that Jeanette's family deemed too expensive. But she says, but I did not envy her becoming a woman. Becoming a woman was the last thing I wanted. So then she says that she's basically stuck sitting on the toilet with blood on her underwear. And she finally calls out, um, mommy. Again, like you're 16 getting your period for the first time and you're saying mommy. Like, I'm just mind blown. Anyway. So then her mom asks her what's going on and she explains I'm bleeding. She says the door bursts wide open and her mom says, um, basically, I'm so sorry and gives her some toilet paper to put in her underwear while she goes to get Patty, the school teacher on set. Then she says she watches the clock tick by 10 minutes of slow burning hell until mom returns with Patty. She says Patty whips out of her back pocket A baby pink wrapped square with a little strip of white tape across it. So obviously Patty has brought pads and supplies for for Jeanette. And Patty congratulates Jeanette on becoming a woman. Then Jeanette says she trudges back onto her school hallway set where the next scene is taking place. And by the way, everyone's looking at her. She can tell that basically everybody has been informed of what's going on and why Jeanette was late to set. Um, and she's embarrassed. She's humiliated and ashamed. She says, how did I let this happen? How did I become a woman? I don't know the answer, but I do know the solution. I know what I'll do to fix this. And then she basically says that her answer is that tomorrow there won't be any 2% milk or honeycomb or smart ones. She feels like she's been slacking and the slacking needs to stop. I need to get back to anorexia. I need to be a kid again. Oh, 16. 16. Which I feel like was late to get your period. I, was, I had mine at nine. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I know people that have, like, had theirs later, but you wonder, too, if, like, the anorexia played a role in her not having it guess. for so long. And then now that she get it, she, she's like, I need to go back to... I'm going to guess. It's so sad. Yeah, can I'm going to Can you even guess. imagine, like... I can't even imagine being, like, working as a child, going, like, on a set... Where your mom 
or whoever has basically announced it to everyone. Outed you that you just got your period. <laughs> Which like, on one hand, Jeanette was late to set. But you would think you could come up with a lie to justify that. Like right. somebody somewhere. Oh, she's in the bathroom. Do you know what I mean? Right. She spilled something on her sweater. She's getting it like anything, but. Right. Come on. No. Right. All right. So 37, we find out that Jeanette has a little music star in her. So she says um, she and her mom are sitting in a Hampton Inn and Suites in downtown Nashville. Um, They've been living here the past three months while she works on her country music career. They're currently splitting a Nutrisystem frozen lasagna dinner. Um, she says, we ordered the month-long program to keep each other on track since Nashville has, quote, so much more lard than L.A., her mom says. Whatever that means. <laughs> okay, Dad. Whatever you say. <laughs> whatever you say. Which, listen, this is sad on a lot of levels, but it's really sad in the fact that Nashville has great food. I know. Well, I mean, <laughs> they do. Yeah, they do. Have, well, I've never been there, but I've heard. They have great food. You're missing out, girl. So, um, they're in the hotel room listening to her final mix of her single called Not That Far Away, which ironically, um, (laughs) is written from her point of view, but basically by other songwriters, like who she's, I think it's like Which is common in the music industry. Yeah, where you spit ideas out there and they kind of make it into a song. Having songwriters, having a team of people work together on writing one song, like that's not uncommon. The funny part about this is, though, is that the song is basically a song to her mother about being on the road without her and how much she misses her. She says, even though in reality, I've never spent more than a few hours away from her in all my 18 years. So you find out she's 18 and this song is basically not her real life, right? Um, So she can tell her mother's really, like, emotional. She's moved to tears. Um, you know, hearing the song. And she, then she tells you kind of the background of how she got into the music business. So it was a, a writer's strike in 07. iCarly was put on an indefinite hiatus until things got settled. So during that time, her agent encouraged her to basically do what all the teen actors were doing and become a music sensation. I mean, how many people... She she quotes or quotes Hillary Duff. She mentions Hillary Duff in here. Miley Cyrus, Selena Gomez. Selena I mean, Gomez. so many people have done it. It's Ariana Grande, who she's going to later work with. Yeah, yeah, all the people. Um. So again, her mom mentions, um, Hillary, and she always has to like throw other people under the bus to compliment her daughter. So she says, "I heard." Hillary doesn't even sing all the songs, and her sister sings half of them. Um, <laughs> she says, my nitty's going to sing all her own songs, like really hyping her daughter up. So she explains that she started her career basically doing covers on YouTube in that hiatus and then was discovered and signed with a record label. So um, that was during a time when it was on hiatus, but when the Stow started, Stow. The show started back up after the hiatus. The writer's strike was over. Uh, She would work on the show Mondays through Fridays, fly out to Nashville on Friday night on the red eye, have her songwriting sessions, do demos, take meetings, photo shoots, all the things. 
and then fly back to California Sunday night. So she's doing a lot of traveling. Um, but she says currently they're between the show seasons. So they're living in Nashville. She and her mom are living in Nashville for a few months while she gets prepped for her tour. But then she tells us that she thinks, she suspects the tour is going to be the first one away from mom. Um, and it's not because her mom has told her, but she mentions it's because they share an email account and she saw um, an outgoing message that her mom sent to Marcus, her brother. And she kind of puts things together. She's how emotional her mom is and finds the courage to just really come out and ask the tough question. So she says, I'm trying to find the exact way she worded it. Hold on. She says, mommy, mommy, do you have cancer again? She says, I feel the color drain from my face after I ask it. I've shocked myself that these words have come out of my mouth. I feel frozen. Mom looks just as shocked as I do. Her tears stop. And then her mom tries to deny it, to which she basically has to come out and say, I saw the email that you sent to Marcus. I know your cancer is back. And her mom bursts into tears. Um... She says, I watch her little body shake and heave with sadness. I get up from my seat at the desk and sit next to her on the edge of the bed. I hug her. She feels so small in my arms. And her mom tells her, like, I don't want to miss your tour. And Jeanette is like, what tour? Like, I'm obviously not going. And then mom goes from sad to, like, angry at the thought of her canceling her tour. She's like, no, no, you've got to go. Like, you you can't skip this tour. You've got to go on tour. And that's where we end. Chapter 37, we find out mom's cancer is back. What are your thoughts? I've said this before. I just think it's so weird how, like, everyone thinks they're a singer. No offense. But that just took right. me. Like, I'm just reminded of so many people that were like, oh, got a break from acting. Let's try our hand at singing. And she just doesn't seem like in that chapter, like she's in love with it. Like it was oh, just right. another thing. Well, I also think it's funny too because even not just in child star, the amount of people that just think they're going to make it big, right? As a singer, like as if it's easy to make it in that industry. And not that I think she thought she was going to make it big, but everyone around her, it was like another thing pushing her to do. It kind of seemed like. Yeah, I just to me it's just like it's hilarious to me when people. Cause I guess probably because I'm such a terrible singer and I recognize that. <laughs> That I'm like, when people think that they're this, like, phenomenal singer that's going to make it big, sometimes you have to just, like, sit back and laugh. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, don't quit your day job, but, like... Right. Follow your dreams, but have a backup plan. <laughs> right. I remember, like, it's... Well, and it's almost like, I remember... This makes me think, like, so, okay, so my sister is getting married in the fall. We've talked about this in the podcast episodes. And I remember my mom saying... After they basically signed the contract and booked the reception venue, that the event planner at the place that the reception is going to be held basically said, you're welcome to have your own, like, officiant. You're welcome to have your own DJ. You're welcome to have your own singer. You're welcome to have your own whatever. But if you don't go off of our list of preferred vendors, then you need to send us their contacts so that we can reach out about insurance and whatever because basically... They're getting married in Vegas, and basically everyone in Vegas thinks they're a singer, and all this, 
a preacher, a DJ. Like, they're basically like, we need to make sure they're legit. And I'm like, that's so true everywhere, though. Like, even, yeah. like, where we live. Where we live, I think everyone thinks they're a photographer. Yes. And it's like, mm. yes. And sometimes you're like, you're not. Like, and listen, no hate to anybody's hobbies. Like, I think that's wonderful. But I think there's a difference between having it as a hobby and, like, marketing yourself above where your talents are at. 100%. And I also think that, like, like, I enjoy taking pictures. I do enjoy that. Again, as a hobby, not a business. But I enjoy taking pictures. But I would also never try to turn it into a business and charge what a photographer would charge. I don't have the skill, the training, the credentials. Like, to me, I enjoy doing it for fun as a hobby. I'm not going to start. Like, some of these these people, no hate. But some of these people in our area, especially, like, think that they can get away with charging professional prices. When you've had no training, no nothing. That's exactly no, like, it. Like, it's a hobby for you. And I love that you love your hobby. I love that you enjoy your hobby. I Like, your photos are gorgeous. But you can't charge me a photographer pricing, like, professional right. rate. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, I love that you are so passionate about it. Yes. But don't try to swindle me here. Like, right. Right. I love you, but stop. But right. Right. Yeah. Okay, so chapter 38 starts with the Generation Love Tour, which she says is basically a mission to get her new single, Generation Love, on the radio. And so she says that the reps at Capitol have arranged for her to perform at a bunch of radio stations across the country um, in what they consider an unconventional radio tour. So basically, instead of performing at the radio stations in the soundproof boxes, She's going to actually go to local malls in the area of the radio stations, and she's going to perform at the small local malls to thousands of screaming tweens. And she says the schedule's so crazy it's hard for her to even keep straight, but that basically her daily routine on this tour consists of waking up at 8, still groggy. She usually has a few hours left to drive on the bus, and then finally the bus driver will pull over at the motel that the label has rented for half a day, which is just enough time for her to shower and then everyone in the band to shower before she needs to get to press. And so then to sound check and then to press. And she says that press and autograph signings are always emotionally exhausting. There are a few interactions that feel worthwhile. She said, usually people have a tendency to make the same jokes to her. So she'll hear, quote, hey, Samantha Puckett, how'd you get out of juvie? And she'll reply, ha ha, good one. Where's your fried chicken? Ha ha, good one. Do you really beat up people in real life? Ha ha, good one. She says her dead soul smile is what she calls it. Spreads across her face and I look into cameras while their mom apologizes 15 times for not knowing how to operate it. Which is funny because I can picture that scenario. Like we've all seen that like. Like, oh, good one. Like, oh, can I get a picture? Can I? Yeah, that's fine. And then. I have no idea how to work that. Like, how do I work? Hold on. Let me, like, I mean, we've all been there. Between the jokes getting repeated and the can't, how do I work the camera? It's like I can totally picture it. Um, but then she follows it up by saying the first thing she's noticing on this tour is that she's finally starting to enjoy herself. She says that a part of her feels guilty for enjoying herself in the midst of such unfortunate circumstances with her mom's cancer being back and her being away from her while she goes through chemo and radiation but that a part of her feels fresh and new and exhilarating. She's finally free 
And then she says, quote, I'm even able to shower myself. Which, let's keep in mind, she's over 18 at this point, and she's just now getting excited about the fact that she can shower herself. That's crazy. Yeah. So then she says, but she is realizing that, um, she's realizing for the first time how exhausting it is to constantly curate my natural tendencies, responses, thoughts, and actions into whatever version mom would like most. And that without her mom around, she's noticing that she misses her deeply and her heart aches over what she's going through. And she does feel guilt, but that without her monitoring her every move, her life feels so much easier. So she's starting to recognize without mom around, things are easier. And then the second thing she's noticing is that she's eating a lot. She says she'll eat Pop-Tarts for breakfast and then she'll eat lunch and dinner with the band, both meals will be out, and she started to order off the adult menu, which again, she's 18. 18. Oh my lord. She's just now starting to order off the adult menu, and rarely is it a salad. She orders burgers and fries. Without being monitored by her mom, she feels like she's being rebellious. She doesn't want to order dressing on the side. She can hear her mom's voice telling her to order dressing. No more bites, that's junk food. You don't want a watermelon, but mind over matter. But she says that her mom's voice in her head can't keep her from eating. She's horrified by this reality, but also drawn to what's on her plate with an attraction that can only be described as lust. She says she finally feels what fullness feels like and that she thinks it feels nice. It's new to her. And it, although it has, it feel, has her feeling guilty, she's ultimately enjoying it. She does say that she recognizes that her mom would be disappointed and that the guilt she's finding just drives her to eat more. Full boxes of Cheez-Its, store-bought cookies, pieces of candy, fruit roll-ups, whatever's on the bus. She says sometimes until her stomach aches and feels like it's about to burst. She goes to bed every night unable to sleep on her stomach because she's so overstuffed. And then this part I was like, really? She goes, I weigh myself in the hotel rooms that have scales in them and the number keeps climbing, climbing, climbing. I'm horrified with every pound gained, but also feel unable to stop. I've been starving myself for years, and now my body is begging for me to stuff myself. Can I just say, as someone who travels frequently, I'm really glad that in 2023, I can't remember the last time I walked into a hotel yeah. room with a scale. I know. I'm like, I didn't. I don't need to step on a scale. I don't even need that to be an option. Was Deb like adamant that like, that was no. like put in the room? Like, who knows? Maybe. No. Yeah, it was weird. So then she says that her new relationship to food deeply confuses her. For years, she's been in complete control of her diet, her body, herself. She's kept herself really thin. She's kept her body childlike. And she found the perfect combination of power and solace in that. And she says, but now I feel out of control, reckless, hopeless. The old combination of power and solace is replaced by a new combination of shame and chaos. She says she doesn't understand what's happening to her and that she's terrified of what will happen when her mom sees her next. Oh. I just want to give Jeanette a big hug. I know. It's like one of, one, it's one of those things where you're like, you want to be happy that she's finally out on her own in a sense. And she's experiencing things like burgers and fries and things other than salad with spray dressing. Which, by the way, what the hell is spray I dressing? I know I thought that too. Like... Put it in a I'm spray lost. bottle, like, God forbid. I mean, I know what spray butter is, but, like, spray dressing, like... They must have made, like, put it in their own bottle. I've never heard of that in the store. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, That's in the Almond Mom section of the store. <laughs> um, Yeah, so it's, like, on one hand, it's, like, I want to feel happy for her. And then on the other, it's, like, she's got herself so, like, 
fixated on or like so naturally consumed with what mom would want and what mom's voice would be saying that you just go, my heart is like breaking for her. Yeah. You can tell as, as free as she's feeling, she's also feeling that tug. Yeah. There's a lot of what her mom is going to think. There's a lot of guilt that that comes with that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, 39. So we, uh, she says, I did not expect a Hampton Inn and Suites to be the, be the place where I have my first real kiss. And yet here I am room 223. And it's with a guy named Lucas. We find out that he's 27 and she's 18. They met, he was a band leader in her band, played electric guitar. Um, so she says she, she's 18 years old. She finally had her first kiss. That was not obviously scripted on a show. She's watching him walk away and she's naming like stuff she doesn't love about him. Like she's like, I don't like the cut of his jeans or his long hair, but I like his queen shirt and the shape of his sneakers. I don't like how much he talks about music, but I like how much he likes me. Like going back and forth. Of, like, All I could think of was, do you remember the Miley Cyrus song, Seven Things? Oh yeah. <laughs> Where she's like. Literally seven like, things. Well, it's like seven you. things. I, well, and it's like seven things I hate about you. And it's like your hair, your eyes, you're the, you're. Like, this, 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 this. And then she was like, the seventh thing, what is it? The seventh thing I hate the most that you do, you make me love you or whatever. And I just kept, like, hearing that song in my head, like, I hate this and this and this and this and this. And you're like, oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. We find out that they have been dating, I think it says for a few months, or they met a few months before, I think is what it was, um, on the tour. So as she's watching him leave, she's contemplating, like, the things she likes and doesn't like about him. And she notes, my vagina feels funny, but I figure I'll worry about that later. So, um, then she kind of talks. I just say I'm really glad you took this chapter. (laughs) (laughs) I bet you are. Um, So she kind of goes in to talk about their relationship. And it's clear, like, she's uncomfortable with the way I think he's showing her love. Um, So he's no longer, he doesn't go to all the locations but they fly him out for different ones so they're doing like the long distance so she says they text every day and have phone calls whenever she can get some privacy which can be hard to come by on the tour bus um and she notes that he says things like i miss you so much and i really 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 like you both of which make her uncomfortable she says and she says she doesn't know why on one hand she likes that he's saying these things but then on the other hand she says she feels physically unable to say them back. Like she just can't get the words out of her mouth. Um, so then she notes that like she'd like to come up with like excuses. So when he would be out, it'd be like he'd want to go to a long time. She'd always find an excuse. Like, oh, I've got to do this or I've got to work on prepping for this or practice my songs or respond to emails from managers or mom or Miranda. Um, but she notes I've been so unsure about him for the past month. So as she's watching him walk away, she's having all of these revelations of, like, how the past months have been going. And finally, she um, says, as much as I'm relieved to say my first kiss is over with, I'm even more relieved to know that now I am sure about him. I'm sure I need to end this, whatever this is. So she's decided it's going to be done. This is the fun part. She says, um, I pull out my phone to text him, but just as I'm about to, there's an odd pulse in my vagina. It feels warm. I reach my hand into my pants and pull it out. My fingers are wet. This is gross. I need to shower. I'll text him after. 
thoughts. No, you take that that's, one. <laughs> that's how she ends the chapter. Clearly her first time maybe being aroused that, like, that's an odd, like, unfamiliar sensation. And she obviously was. <laughs> You're doing great. Wet? Like, I don't know how to say that. Like, obviously she was aroused and wet. And was not, had not experienced that before. She was turned on. Okay. That's it. That is 39. <laughs> She's like, enough of that. <laughs> 40. There's a chapter coming up that I really hope works out in my favor, too. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> All right. So, 40. 40 starts off with her getting off the plane. She says she's tugging her shirt down so that it looks flat. She's sucking in to look as thin as possible. And you basically come to realize she's going to visit her mom. She's gone back home. She's going to visit her mom and she's concerned about what her dad will think. and Or what, I'm sorry, what her mom will think. And she says that her still small voice, which she now says is her OCD pounding voice of mental illness is more sporadic than it used to be, but it's almost exclusively related to food in her body. It's still there. She says she takes a deep breath, steps off the escalator, heading towards baggage claim. And she says that a young dad with a nervous laugh asks for a picture of his daughters. Then she says, asked for a picture with his daughters. And then she says that she's getting off the elevator. She looks up the line of people there. The sight in front of her shocks her for a moment and she says, I'm more confused on her appearance than I am on mine. So she sees her mom. And when she sees her mom, she says she's lost a dozen or so pounds, which is hugely noticeable on someone with a small a frame as what she has. She says she looks very sickly. Her bones protrude from under her skin. She doesn't have any eyebrows or eyelashes. She's wearing a hat that Jeanette had given her for Christmas to cover her bald head. She's absolutely shocked at the sight of her. She says that her dad is standing next to her mom, but that he might as well not be because she doesn't even notice what's going on other than focusing on her mom. So she says they exchange hugs and I love yous and she settled slightly. She said she's adjusted just enough to be able to take in mom's reaction, which is the same as the one she had towards her, a combination of shock and horror with a vacant smile on top. She says she feels sick to her stomach while she waits for her mom to tell her how ugly, how fat, how horrible she's been, horrible mistakes she's made. Um, and that she says basically her mom starts it off by saying, Nat, what happened? And she says, I know I'm sorry. And her mom says, we've got to get you on a diet. This is getting out of hand. And Jeanette says, I know. And she says, I'm immediately full of remorse for sure. But then she says there's also a piece of her that picks up a little bit of enthusiasm, a little bit of a lift in spirit, because this is the mom she knows. And it's almost like in this minute, she's not weak or frail or soft or beaten down by cancer, like whoever the person was that I saw as soon as I got to baggage claim. Whoever that wilted excuse of a person was, I refuse to believe that person is my mother. The mom I know is the person sitting in front of me, the person who is strong-willed and forceful and sometimes vicious. This is the mom I know. Good old dad. Good old dad. I will say that I think that's telling of just how far Jeanette has come that she can recognize this person who looks so frail and so sickly and so thin and looks like she's dying is almost unrecognizable to her. But that the second that unrecognizable person opens her mouth and starts criticizing her, 
it almost makes her happier to know mom's still in there somewhere. This is still mom. You know? It's like a little bit of hope, but in such a sad, twisted way. Yeah. All right. So 41 starts um, with the career saying, come on, take a sip. And she's saying, no, thanks. She's never had alcohol before. She's only 18. And she's saying, couldn't I get in trouble? The creator's reassuring her, no one's looking, you're fine. And he even tells her that the Victorious Kids, which are stars on another show that this creator produces, um, he tells them that the Victorious Kids get drunk together all the time and that the iCarly Kids are just so wholesome that you need to give yourself a little edge, basically. So, let's see... She says, the creator always compares iCarly kids to the kids on Victorious. I think he thinks it'll make us try harder. Um, So she looks at the creator's drink. He's picking it up, slashing it around. It's some sort of whiskey with coffee and cream. She says, I do like coffee. So he pressures her, says one sip. She agrees. She takes a sip. He asks how she likes it. She says, it's great. To which he responds, don't lie to me. And she then is honest and says she hates it. He laughs. Um, Then she notes that they have been going to dinner a lot lately to discuss um, her spinoff that is in the works of being sent to contract or as the new contract is being worked out. Um, He says the creator, she says the creator is doing a thing that I've heard for my co-stars, he does with every new star of a show that he's making. He takes you under his wing. You're his favorite for now. She says, I like being his favorite for now. I feel like I'm doing something right. So um, kind of love bombing her and then kind of adding a little hint of uh, passive aggression into there. So he says, are you excited to have your own show? She says, sure. And he says, um, Good, because I could give the show to anyone, you know, but I didn't choose anyone. I chose you. And then, then says, she says, you know, well, thank you. And he says, well, don't thank me. I chose you because you're talented. So on one hand, she's like left to think and she notes this like, so on one hand, I basically should be thankful because out of anyone, he chose me. But on the other hand, he's like saying, well, of course, I, I chose you because you're way better than the other. You know, it's like, make it make sense. Am I lucky that you chose me that like you just did me this huge favor Or, on the other hand, are you lucky that you found me because I'm doing you a favor, too? Like, make it make sense. Um, So, she's talking about them going out to eat. And she has a steak. And he asks how the steak is. And she said it was good. But she says it's actually terrible. The taste is great. um, But in terms of how much she's fixating on the food, um, it's not. So, she said she ate too much of it. And had too many roasted potatoes, too many Brussels sprouts, roll, glazed carrots. She said, I couldn't stop myself. I ate everything. I feel so full and disgusted with myself. Um, Then she talks about how her mom got her back on the Nutrisystem diet, like they did when they were in Nashville. But she notes that unlike Nashville, when they were together, they are spending a lot of time apart these days. Um, She says, when mom's not around to motivate or coach me, I can't seem to force myself to eat a cardboard cinnamon roll that tastes more like a protein bar wrapped around itself or the dressingless salad. Um, and she notes, I can't keep up with my diet without mom. I'm a failure without her. The creator, as she's, you know, dealing with these thoughts, asking her if she's okay. 
and she's assuring that she is. And then this last part kind of left me uneasy. So um, she said he reaches out and places his hand on my knee. I get goosebumps. To which he responds, you're cold. And let's see. She said, I don't think that's why I got the goosebumps, she says. But I agree because it's always best to agree with him. So he takes off his jacket, puts it around her, and then gives her like a shoulder rub. He said, She said, he pats my shoulders and then Pat turns into a massage. Oof, you're so tense. And then gets off into something else. She, she says, she notes that she was uncomfortable. She's like, I like massages basically, um, but I don't want the creator to be the one massaging. And yeah, just felt uneasy that last part. So that is where we leave in 41. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think a couple things. One, the mom and the Nutrisystem diet. Like, oh here we go God. again. Like, why are we circling back to this? But then also, like, her with the creator, I think we're starting to see where she, I think, is also starting to recognize that she doesn't really want the creator to be treating her the way that he is either. Right. You know? She's recognizing it's odd. She's recognizing it's odd. She's recognizing that she's uncomfortable. And I think she recognized prior to this that she didn't like the way that he treated her or treated other people from a business standpoint. But I think now she's realizing he's even starting to cross lines and kind of push boundaries with her even outside of the business or gaslighting, manipulating the situation because of the business. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts? I agree. That last part was just very, I, I think it's going to be foreshadowing. Yeah. I think there's a reason sure. she doesn't name him. Oh, for sure. the creator, So I just anticipate more to come that is inappropriate and oh for sure yeah for not sure good. i mean I, yeah yeah okay so then chapter 42 she actually opens with the line that says i can't believe my baby girl is moving away mom says in a way that's different than from how grandma would say it and you basically come to find out that jeanette has made the decision to get her own apartment and to go move out on her own um she says it'll just be for work days and that she'll always come home on weekends if she doesn't need to go to nashville and then her mom is basically pushing back and starting to fight it. She's saying that she's concerned she'll never see Jeanette anymore. And then this, okay, again, again, Deb. Really, Deb? Really? Really? Yeah. When Deb's reaction is, that's a big if. I'm hardly going to see my baby. Who's going to keep your eating on track? How are you going to shampoo your hair? She's 19 years old, Deb. If she hasn't learned by now, she's not learning. Like, my God. Like, that's a freaking life skill, Deb. Like, I... It's your job to teach your child how to shampoo her own damn hair, Deb. Like, really? So then Jeanette pushes back and kind of explains that she did it on her own on tour. To which Deb says, yeah, but I saw pictures and it looked greasy. There's always a comment for everything with her. Always. Um, So then Jeanette says that she basically explains that she feels this is the best option because she can't drive. So you find out here... That Jeanette is 19 years old and she can't drive. She's never gotten her license. That's not something that Deb has allowed her to do. Um, And she says, and you can't anymore. At which point her mom looks down and she says she can tell she hurt her feelings. And that her mom kind of somberly says, I might be able to drive again someday. As timidly as a child would to seek reassurance from an adult. So Jeanette assumes the role of the adult and says, I know you might. With loaded positivity the way an adult would reassure a child. So now you're seeing... She's got Jeanette almost playing role reversal at times 
to encourage her. And you just go, this is still, I mean, I know she's 19 at this point, but. She's your child. Right. Yeah. So then you come to find out that she says they both look at her wheel, at Deb's wheelchair, the one that she, quote, should utilize when she needs. And she basically goes on to explain that the day that they got the wheelchair, the day that Deb got the wheelchair, her and Jeanette tried to spin it as this great thing and how they're going to speed down the hallways and they're going to have so much fun. But that she then later went to the bathroom in this hospital room and basically cried her eyes out. And she says, quote, this goddamn wheelchair is the furthest thing from a fucking yay. It's a death sentence. Neither of us can admit it, but that's what it is. Once you're a cancer patient with a wheelchair, you're never going to be one without it. You're going to die a wheelchair, a wheelchairing cancer patient. And then says, F this. Which I will say as a side note, I have heard that before. That like basically when you're a cancer patient in the hospital, you don't want to be told you're getting a wheelchair. Because if you're getting a wheelchair... That's, You're not going to come back from that. Yeah. I have heard that before. Um, so then anyway, so then basically you skip to the point where Grandpa and Deb and Jeanette are moving Jeanette into her apartment. And it's about an hour away. It's her first ever solo apartment. And she says that this one, particular one would not have been her first choice, but it just makes sense logistically that her new managers had arranged for Nickelodeon to pay for her lodging there and for a production assistant to take her to and from work. Because again, she's 19, but she can't drive because Deb says it's probably too difficult for her and that my energy and cars would be spent elsewhere, which here's my thing. She's 19 years old, Deb. 19. Yeah. Like at what point, like this is, Mom says it's probably too difficult for me. She's 19 years old. If driving a car is too difficult for her, you failed at homeschooling, Deb. Like, it's like, seriously. Make it make sense. Right. Oh, my gosh. Um, And then she basically goes on to say that she would never admit this to her mom, but that even though she told her mom she's devastated about being away from her, she's actually excited. She says she feels guilty about that because of how bad her mom is doing medically, Um, But that she's actually excited to get out on her own, to get a space to herself and life to herself. So then as her grandpa carries her mom into the apartment while she carries the last few boxes, her mom surprises surprises her with a present and says she got her a present. And Jeanette says you didn't have to, but obviously mom insists on her getting it. And she basically says that she opens up a DVD of The Sting and that her mom loves The Sting and that she does too, but that mom loves it more. And then basically you come to find out that mom has decided that after they get her all moved in, then they're all going to sit down and they're going to watch this movie together. And wouldn't it be so fun? Um, wouldn't it be so fun if she spent the night? And then Jeanette says, she looks at me doe-eyed, wringing her hands nervously. I immediately know what this is. This is not mom spending the night. This is mom spending every night for the foreseeable future. This is mom moving in. I don't want her to spend the night. But of course, it's Jeanette and Deb. So Jeanette says, sure, you can spend the night. And then Jeanette says, and I continue to say that every single night for the next three months until eventually she doesn't even ask anymore. She just expects it. This is not my first ever solo apartment. This is our apartment. We are now roommates. Oh, Lord. Poor Jeanette. Walked right into that one. She walked right into that one. And it's like, here's Jeanette getting all excited to get out on her own and get her own apartment and be free. And then, sure enough, here comes Deb deciding that we're going to... Which, this is my thing. 
And I know that we, like, cover that in, like, some other scenarios. But, like, where is dad in all of this? Why is there no one to be like, listen, dad? Yeah. Playing, like, maybe dad's just happy Do you know what dad's I mean? not around him. Is, is that rude to say? I mean, <laughs> I'm going to take 43. No, no, no. I got 43. <laughs> Because she's going to take the next one, which is the one she was helping out with. I'm going to take 43, and you're going to take 44. So 43, she's at Six Flags with her iCarly crew members, and she says she's tucked into the seats on a ride, um, and her coworker Joe is seated directly behind her and keeps touching her. And she said at first she couldn't tell if it was an accident, um, because he's in his 30s and has a girlfriend. But it's happened so many times now that she's basically sure he's doing it on purpose. And she goes on to say that their friendship has been flirty for the past several months. Ever since um, they were in the room together for a table read, they got to talking um, and basically kind of became friends. Uh, Let's see. Oh, so basically she just she enjoys Joe. Like, on a friendship level, and you can tell a little flirty level. So, he sa- she says, now he's touching me the way he's touching me. This is another level. Or so I assume. I've never been touched like this before, so I don't know exactly. Sure, this wasn't the kiss with Lucas at the Hampton Inn, but since then, roman has- romance has been non-existent in my life. All I know is that this feels like more than just a friendly touch. My whole body tingles when his hand la- lands on my back. And she says, in that moment, she knows one way or another, they're going to be together. That was a short one. That was 43. That was literally a page. 44. Yeah, we all know why that's, you're, yeah. We all know why this is, that was a short one. So 44 starts off with her saying that, basically, she's telling her mom a lie that she and Miranda are going to have a sleepover. And her mom genuinely asks, what am I going to do alone without you? I'll miss you more than anything. I just love you so much, Nat. And Jeanette says, I'll miss you too, Mommy. This is just something Miranda and I have been planning for a while. I lied twice with this one. She says the first lie there was that she would miss her. She says she won't miss her and she'll be happy to have space from her. Because you come to find out, ever since Jeanette moved into her first solo apartment, which has now become known as the not-solo apartment, Deb is sleeping in her bed. Deb is sleeping in her bed with her 19-plus-year-old daughter at this point. Why is Grandpa or Dad not, like... Listen, that's my thing. Where is everybody else at? Where are these brothers? Like, where? Anyway. So then she says, the second lie is that Miranda and I are having a sleepover. We have sleepovers every couple of weeks, but not tonight. Tonight, Joe is going to stay with me. And then she goes on to explain that she can't tell her mom about Joe because her mom would never approve. And she says, quote, mom only approves of me hanging out with two types of boys, Mormons and gays. All right, Dad. All right, Dad. Because the Mormons are just... Right. Right, yeah. So then her mom tries pleading with her to stay. Yeah, but I need you right now. And Jeanette stays adamant. I will be back tomorrow. And then you come to basically find out that Deb has sensed that she's lying. And says, you're lying to me, you liar. Mom says, spitting as her face contorts. I'm going to find out what's going on. Mark my words, you filthy little lying whore. And she says, Mom's been harsh with me before, but she's never spoken to me like this. And you bet your ass I'll be able to sniff the lies on you tomorrow when you come back, she says dramatically. It's obvious to me how much Mom wanted to be an actress. (laughs) Right, Mark? Very clear. Right, Mark? 
Deb says, Mom whips her head around to my dad, who's been there this whole time not saying a word as usual. Or not offering to bring her home. (laughs) Right. He nods quickly, scared of her wrath. Fed up, I grab my backpack and I start to head out. I'm going to figure out what you're up to, you liar. Mom screams. So basically, you come to find out there that Dad has been there. He's not defending Jeanette because he's also afraid of Mom. Mom is starting to sense that Jeanette's been lying about things. Which we now know is basically that she's going to have a sleepover with Joe and she's sneaking around with Joe because mom only approves of Mormons and gays. So then the second half of this chapter, we literally have asterisks separating to the next part. We're going to cut to the sleepover. (laughs) So Joe picks her up and... Basically, you come to find out that Joe's sad and drunk, and she's trying hard to resist the disillusionment. Did you do it? I ask anxiously. Yes, I broke up with her. I wouldn't be here if I didn't, he says, his words slurring. Right, how are you? How do you think I am? She says Joe looks down like he almost feels bad for snapping, but that basically she's starting to pick up on the fact that he's... He's drunk. And she says, I'm concerned that he's driving while drunk, but I fear bringing this up because I'll know it'll make him more erratic. Which also, again, let's remind ourselves, Jeanette does not have a license. Deb has not allowed her to learn how to drive. So she's now a passenger with a drunk driver who really can only do so much because she can't drive. Yeah. Scary. Right. Yeah. Not good. So then she basically says that by the time Joe gets them there and they get to their room, it's after midnight and Joe tries to shove the key into the slot, but he's too wobbly. So she takes care of it. Joe's adamant that he could have done it, but that she'd already done it. And she says that as soon as they get into the room, he immediately collapses onto the bed and his chest, his chest heaves. He makes that gross hiccupy crying sound. And then basically you come to find out he's having some sort of emotional breakdown because he's drunk. And so she ends up lying down next to him and hugging him. She says, I'm the big spoon. He's rattled on about his regret and remorse. If I were good enough, he wouldn't be feeling this way. He wouldn't be sad. And then this is where we get into the part. Martina's dying laughing. Just because they know it makes you so uncomfortable. It is. So then... Basically, Joe says, I thought you are, um, Jeanette says, I thought you wanted this. I say looking for reassurance. As in this relationship, this sleepover, and Joe says, you won't even have sex with me. He, he wails. So then you come to find out that basically Jeanette says it's true. She won't have sex with him. And that even though they've stopped going to church, there are a few rules that she just can't get herself to break. And one of them is that she does not plan on having sex before marriage. And she says that they've been seeing each other for the past three months, but that they've been keeping things secretive at work, which really causes the tension to build up. And then after work, most nights they get together at his place if his girlfriend's not around. So now you come to find out who he was referring to in his drunken state earlier is the girlfriend who he may or may not have truly broken up with. Um, And then she says... We've made out and rubbed on each other, but we've never had sex and I've never even touched his penis. I'm sorry. I'm just not ready. I tell him with a finality that makes me proud. So she's proud of herself for standing up to Joe. It's a boundary. It's a boundary. Well, can you give me a blowjob at least? Joe, Joe read the room. <laughs> read the room, Joe. Joe lifts his head off the bed like a hopeful, needy puppy. 
And then Jeanette basically again doubles down on the fact that she does not want to do this. And so Joe goes as far as to say that it's ridiculous and that his needs aren't being met. So then Jeanette tries offering that they can make out, and he says that he doesn't want to make out, that he's 32 years old. So again, Jeanette is somewhere around 1920. He's 32. And not that there's anything wrong with the age gap. But there's a difference in where they're at. But there's a difference in where they're at in maturity, in life. And like, I'm not criticizing people who have a large age gap, but I think it's important to note here when you're dealing with a 20-year-old Versus a 32. Yeah. And she says that him yelling that basically has her feeling stupid for even suggesting the idea and embarrassed for not being sexually advanced enough to meet his needs. Um, even though I'm 18, I feel like a child. So she's still 18 at this point. She's 18. Which I guess technically is legally an adult, but I'm putting off the rest of this as long as I can. Can you tell? Just do it. <laughs> That's what Joe's saying. All right. So then, anyway, so then... um. Joe says, you're too young for me. This is never going to work. Joe starts to get off off the bed. So Jeanette says, okay, okay, I'll do it. I say, immediately disappointed in myself. So Joe lays back down and sprawls out lazily like he's already over the idea, but might as well go forward with it since we're both there. He unzips his pants and pulls out his penis. And she says she stands there looking at it for a long time. So then she asks him what she's supposed to do because she's never done this before. And... He basically says, yeah, it's not a turn on when you say shit like that. Like, all right, you want it. What do I do? Which, listen, this whole thing is not a turn on. Like, the whole thing. Is she doesn't want to be doing it. You're forcing it. She now is expressing she doesn't even know how to go about it. And now you're upset she doesn't know how. And it's like, let's remember you're 32 and she's 18. Which, can we just also say, it's so like, gross to me that she's made it clear twice now that that's something she's not comfortable with and he continues to like guilt her into it and then finally when her when she's like fine i'll do it he just sees like no problem with like all right great i got my way like gross no no no. not acceptable joe is that his name yeah yes um and then she says that Basically, this time feels different. That He's been drunk before, but this time feels different. And then it's hard for her to gauge uh, how much alcohol he's had because she's never drank alcohol at this point, other than the splash of the creator spiked coffee. And so she says that basically she just tries to guess based on how crooked he's walking or how slurred his words were, but that she'll oftentimes find herself justifying his behavior as being overwhelmed with grief from his breakup. But honestly, this time she doesn't want to justify anything. He's so much older than her and cooler than her. And she does ultimately feel like they have something special together. So she's in a situation where I think there's a part of her that's like, I know this is wrong or it feels wrong. But there's also a part of her that's like, this is what I know. This is what. Right. Yeah. So then she says that she starts doing it and she says, I die forward and then I start doing it, licking it and sucking it and hoping that's what I'm supposed to be doing and hoping I'm doing it in a way that's pleasurable to him. But I have no idea. I've been an actor for a dozen years. I'm nothing without direction. So then Joe says with a gasp, I'm about to finish. And she thinks this sounds like a good thing, but she doesn't know what's about to happen. So Joe says, speed it up a little. 
And then Jeanette says, thank you, I say, direction. Like, she's happy to finally get direction. Yeah, give me direction. That's what I'm used to. What do I need to do here? And then she ends the chapter by saying, (laughs) and then suddenly something that tastes like warm liquid plastic shoots into my mouth. I spit it out onto the bedspread. Something came out. Oh, my God. Something just came out. Joe looks at me with dull annoyance and says, yeah, it's cum. What's cum? Joe turns on his side, facing away from me, and clutches a pillow tight to his chest. He takes a long breath. What have I done? He asks. That's Martina. <laughs> That's Martina. Um, wonderful recap of that chapter. It just makes me cringy the whole, like, pressuring her into it. Yeah, I agree. And, like, her just being so kind of desperate just to make him happy and hold on to, you know, this love that she thinks she has with him that, like, she's pressured into doing something she doesn't want to do and clearly was not ready for. Right. And didn't, you know, have a full understanding of what was going to be happening. And I just think shame on Joe, honestly. Do you think that Joe saying at the end, what have I done? Has Joe at all in that moment drunk realizing... I don't know if it's more so what have I done like oh god I made a mistake like pressuring you into this or like what have I done like being with you so young so naive and I've just ended my relationship with my long-term girlfriend for a girl who doesn't even know what cum is like right I don't know right all right 45 so um starts off they are in Hawaii. Um, she says they go to Hawaii and a Maui employee greets them as they drape floral lay around their necks and uh, or a nut lay around Joe's. She said Joe's eyes linger on the employee for 0.2 seconds too long. I hate the bitch. I make a mental note to work on jealousy someday whenever I get around to it. And that's relatable. Yeah, I need to work on that someday else. <laughs> Um, they check into the hotel and the reservations under her name and not Joe's. She says, whether it's the age difference between Joe and me or just sexism, nobody seems to believe that she could have booked a trip to the Four Seasons for the both of them, that it must have been Joe. Um, she said, granted, like, I've had a moment, like, I've had moments like that where, like, it's like, nope, I'm the primary. It's on my, it's on my card. (laughs) Right. Like, no, I got this. Right. Um, My favorite is when I pay the bill. When I pay the bill, like, at a restaurant, and the card clearly has, like, my name on it, I've picked up the bill, I've put my card in it, it's now sitting next to me when you come and grab it, and then they run my card, and then they bring it back, and they hand my card and the receipt to sign to a guy at the table. Ew. No, that's I've had that happen not once, but twice. That's never happened to me. It's my name on the card. (laughs) I... Have it sitting next to me, in front of me. You picked it up from me, from in front of me, ran my card, and brought it back and handed it to a guy. And that's on a not great tip for you, sir. No. Sexism See, I'm tipping at least 25%. We've talked about this. Sexism ain't cool. Um, and then the, the best one happened at Buffalo Wild Wings once. Not to call out the restaurant, but it happened at Buffalo Wild Wings once. And I was with family, and they brought my dad the bill. They gave my dad my card and the bill. My dad just took it, and I just, like, was like, whatever at this point. And then my sister, as the waiter's walking away, goes, 
That's sexist. <laughs> Under her breath. I have no idea if he heard, but she literally says, oh, that's sexist. God, I hope he did hear. It's like, oh, shit. Gotta love Kylie. <laughs> <laughs> Go, Kylie. Um, it is funny, though, because you find out that the trip really wasn't paid for by her, but it's a cast gift. So each cast member was given that at the end of the fifth season wrap-up for iCarly. So they got four nights and five days at the Four Seasons Resort in Maui. Um, one A cast member and one guest. So she says, of course, Joe's my guest. We've been together for a year at this point, And our relationship has settled into a nice groove. She uh, mentions that about 50% of the time it's chaotic and tumultuous. He's drunk. And she's hysterical. Joe gets upset that she's too possessive and she's upset that Joe's gotten back into debt three weeks after I've paid it off for him. Interesting little note there. But she says the other 50% of the time things are great. So, you know, why harp on the bad, right? Only 50%. Um, So she says we watch reruns of Survivor. We have stupid but fun inside jokes. We laugh a lot. We still haven't had sex, but I've gotten better at giving blowjobs. She said, the relationship looks and feels to me like a huge step up from my parents, where they were screaming, tumultuous fighting, but none of the fun. So she's basically saying here, like, yeah, we have some of that, but, you know, we also have some fun. But she says, the only problem is that mom doesn't know about their relationship. She said, mom had to move out of my apartment a few months back to be closer to her oncologist for her appointments. And she said, now that they're not physically in the same space, mom calls her a lot. 10 or so times a day to keep up on life and her character development, all the things, and to also continue to try and convince her to get back into country music, which she said she stopped after mom's cancer took a turn for the worse. Um, so she hasn't told mom that she brought Joe, but she's worried how she's going to get through this trip at the Four Seasons without her mom finding out who she's with. So, To cover her butt, she tells her mom that she's with Colton, who is a gay friend. We're not not sure if he's Mormon, but for sure gay. So either gay or Mormon are important to Deb. (laughs) Um, But she approves, as we know, because she says, quote, there's no way his penis is entering me. (laughs) But she convinces Colton to, like, join in on three-way calls with her mom to help, like, keep up the lie to convince her. She says lying is difficult whenever she lies um, to protect the relationship with Joe. She hangs up and weeps in Joe's arms from the guilt. She wants to be honest with her. She wants her to meet him, but she's scared of her. Um, And Joe's there to comfort her. She does say, too, she feels a wedge between her mom and her that grows each day. She says, with every lie I tell, I feel slipping further away from her. With every pound I gain, every binge I partake in, I feel myself getting more disconnected from her. She's confused and troubled. She's desperate to feel close with her mom, but also desperate for that to be on her own terms and not on her mom's. Um, She wants her mom to allow her growth and she wants her mom to want to be with her as her, who she is. So, um, three days into the vacation, the plan is going smoothly. They continue the three-way calls with Colton to convince her mom. They're enjoying the beautiful beach, having a great time. Um, but on day three, I believe it says, yep, day three, Joe spots 
um, paparazzi. And he spots it and tells her to duck. She sees it and basically is thinking, oh, she says, quote, shit, 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 shit. This is a disaster. They swim out. By the time they're in the room, she's panicking, thinking of all the ways her mom will be upset with her and punish her and threaten her and all the horrible things that will happen. But she says eventually she's hysterical for so long that she ends up falling asleep by 6 p.m. But the next morning, she doesn't get to enjoy the beautiful scenery, the palm trees, the shimmering turquoise water, she calls it. Um, She... And my, she says, in my cold, hard iPhone screen with a glaring notification that terrifies me. 37 missed calls from mommy. Again, mommy. <laughs> 16 voicemails and four missed emails. We no longer share an account. I recently created my own thanks to Joe's encouragement. So she opens the top email. And this is directly from the book. We're quoting this. This is the email that she was sent. Dear Ned, I am so disappointed in you. You used to be my perfect little angel. But now you are nothing more than a little slut, a floozy, all used up. And to think you wasted on that hideous ogre of a man. I saw the pictures on a website called TMZ. I saw you in Hawaii with him. I saw you rubbing his disgusting, hairy stomach. I knew you were lying about Colton. And that to the list of things, add that to the list of things you are. Liar, conniving, evil. You look pudgier too. It's clear you're eating your guilt. Thinking of you with his ding-dong inside of you makes me sick. Sick. I raised you better than this. What happened to my good little girl? Where did she go? And who is this monster that has replaced her? You're an ugly monster now. I told your brothers about you, and they all said they disown you just like I do. We want nothing to do with you. Love, Mom. Or should I say Deb, since I am no longer your mother. P.S. Send money for a new fridge. Ours broke. Time out there. The P.S. Send money for a new fridge. After I cannot. Every name in the book. We disown you. But like after you send the money for the new fridge. Obviously. So obviously Jeanette is crushed. She says I hunch over. Bury my head in my hands. Breaking into a sob. Joe comes to comfort her. She's not Okay. She convinces herself, maybe she's right. Maybe I've lost my way. Maybe I am an evil monster. And she's picking up her phone, trying to type in TMZ, um, to which Joe reminded her that they decided together they were not going to look at the pictures because he knows her body image um, isn't good. So um, they had agreed to that. But she convinces herself, no, I need to see him. I need to see him. She looks him up and basically her mom's words ring true to her. She says um, she needed to see him to see if mom was right. And she is. I look awful. My body and face repulse me. I do look pudgy. I am no longer wearing one pieces, but I still, or she said, I no longer wear one pieces, but I still wear board shorts to hide my ass, which is curvy and womanly and disgust me for being those things. Um, She says again, I wish there was nothing sexual or suggestive about my body. My tears are replaced by venomous self-loathing. Um, Joe decides to take her phone and put it in the hotel safe for her own well-being. Good, good call, Joe. Um, over the next two days, the phone stays in the safe while they continue their trip. 
Um, they try to make the most out of their remaining time doing activities together. But obviously, I would imagine that just ruins your trip. Um, so her phone's been far enough away. She said by that time they were enjoying themselves that she's almost forgotten about the incident. But then when they're packing up to leave, um, she sees him enter the coat for the safe. And he pulls her phone out to tuck it into his pocket. Uh, let's see. And then basically she wants to see her phone. And he tells her, hey, it's probably a bad idea. She takes it anyway. She needs to see it. To which when she looks at her phone, she now has 45 missed calls from Deb, 22 unread emails from her. And she starts reading through the messages. And one after the other, she gets more aggressive, calling her dimwit, loser, scumbag, devil child. Um, just all the nasty things. And then she says she reads another email from her mom. This one is titled letter to your fans. She opens it and finds a scathing note attached a note that she says, mom tells me she's posted to an online Jeanette McCurdy fan club in an attempt to get my fans to flee from me. She says that she's going to steal all my fans, that she deserves them more than I do, that she swears to God, she's going to sign up for vine and they're all going to love her comedy videos. Throwback to Vine. I know. Like, also, cringe, Deb. Vine was TikTok before TikTok, I feel like. Yeah. Vine was, like, where you posted all those videos. Yeah. All the young kids these days don't know. (laughs) Um, So her mom basically wrote this scathing thing and, and said that she uploaded it to this fan club. And so Jeanette goes to look up the fan club to see if her mom was bluffing. To her horror, she sees... No, she was not bluffing. Her mom really did upload this horrible thing. And she doesn't go into detail about what it all said, but it was basically all this nasty stuff about her. Mm-hmm. Um, she goes back to her email. I'm sure it's on the internet somewhere. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> she goes back to her email and sees another new message. And this is so sad. It popped up and she opened it. It says, you caused my cancer to come back. I hope you're happy knowing this. You have to live with this fact. You gave me cancer. So she drafts a letter to her mom back asking if they can sit down, talk it out face to face. And she says, I'm sure that if she'll just grant me that, I can explain myself enough to earn her approval. And she's just desperate. So to her mom, she writes, my dear Noni mommy, please can we at least just meet in person to talk about this? Please, just me and you. We can sit down and talk this out. I can answer any questions you have. Please, mommy. I hate letting you down. I would do anything not to disappoint you. I feel confident that if you knew the whole situation, you wouldn't think these things about me. I love you so much. I want to be close to you again. I miss you. Love, Nettie. So she clicks her phone off. Again, that's a draft. So she saves the draft, clicks her phone off, um, and they go on to the plane ride without... She says she doesn't say a word on the plane ride. Um, She says... Over the past few years, Mom and I have grown apart in a way that I never thought was possible. Between fame and Joe, the strain between me and Mom has gotten really intolerable. Plus, there's a strain of cancer. Um, she asks, like, why can't she admit she's dying? Why can't she admit that she's dying to them? Um, she says, I hate her so much for caring about fame, and she hates me for caring so much about Joe. There seems to be more hate than love for each other right now. But maybe we're both just scared. Maybe we're just letting this wedge between us grow. Because deep down, we both know that soon enough, this wedge will be out of our control. Um, so the plane lands. She opens the email draft and decides to hit send to the mo- to her mom. 
And moments later, she receives a response back from mom after all the horrible things her mom said. After Jeanette pleads to meet with her, her mom (laughs) says, sure, we can meet up. P.S. Remind her to send fridge money. Our yogurt has soured. Priorities, Deborah. Priorities. Priorities. I cannot with, I like cannot with the fridge money. I can't, like, after everything. I, like, that's just, like, I can't. I want to know listen, if she ever sent her the money, too. Well, I want to know if she ever sent her the money. And also, I'm sure that happens a lot with, like, celebrities and their families. Yeah. But I just, I cannot. So then, 46, you basically come to find out that, yes, they did meet up. And now they have, like, a standing, basically regular lunch at Panda Express for two hours where her dad drops her mom off. They do a two-hour lunch. And then dad comes back to pick up mom. And the first couple had Jeanette basically on edge, wondering when is mom going to bring it up? You know, the whole Hawaii situation with Joe. Um, But Deb never does. And then finally, at one particular lunch, Deb calmly says, Jeanette, will you sing Wind Beneath My Wings at my funeral? And Jeanette basically explains that mom's cancer has always fallen under the category of things that they pretend that don't exist because they're uncomfortable talking about it. Um, But mom asking this question is a breach of that unspoken rule, and she's not sure how to process this or proceed, and kind of hesitates. And at that point, Deb basically explains that she wants her, if she's going to do it, she wants her to do it 100%. She wants her to believe in the words and do it with emotion, and that basically it's not worth it to Deb if she's only going to half-ass it and do give 50%. And again, Jeanette kind of hesitates, at which point Deb says, let me hear you try it. And Jeanette explains, Mom, we're in Panda Express. I'm not going to. And, of course, it's Deb. And so Deb's like, just try it. And so Jeanette basically right there in Panda Express in front of everybody starts practicing Wind Beneath My Wings for her mom's funeral. Can you even imagine people, like, enjoying their mom's chicken and you see the girl next to you, like, practicing this song for her mom's funeral? No. I can't. Just No. Um, And so then her mom stops her in the middle and starts giving her critiques. She goes again. So they're over and over and over again practicing this wind beneath my wings for her mom's funeral. And Jeanette basically says (coughs) that she feels obligated as it's her mom's dying wish. The only problem is that she doesn't think she has the range to sing it. And so then at that point, her mom basically starts trying to convince her that she does have the range. And... um, Even when they go home back at her apartment, her mom pulls up the song on YouTube so that she can practice along and give her a taste of what the final performance will be. Jeanette reminds her, well, I didn't I didn't think you wanted me to ever over practice anything and burn out. And then her mom basically says, well, we're practicing so far ahead, hopefully that it won't matter. And at that point, Jeanette realizes that her mom's pointed choice of words or word rather hits her hard, hopefully. She says she feels upset with her mom and then feels guilty for feeling upset and that she thinks she must be a terrible person to be angry with her mom while she's slowly dying. And so she throws her energy of guilt and anger (coughs) into meeting her mom's dying wish and that she hopes that maybe that will clear her conscience. So she pulls up the song on YouTube and another tab with the lyrics and then she begins and the verse is as expected. It's out of her range. And so then her mom assures her that it's just because she didn't do any vocal warm-ups and that next time she'll have to do vocal warm-ups and then try again. So Jeanette does vocal warm-ups for 10 minutes and then tries again and again adamantly says it's out of her range, at which point her mom insists that it is not and that she'll get there and that she's got plenty of time to practice, 
hopefully. And so again, Jeanette ends the chapter by basically saying that she just continues to practice and practice and practice the song Wind Beneath My Wings for her mom's funeral. Um, and that hopefully she has plenty of time to get it right. Thoughts? So weird. I mean, I've heard of people saying like, hey, will you sing this, planning their funeral? But like, <laughs> what was it? What was the restaurant at? Panda Express. Panda Express. Why would I want to say Pancheros with a P? <laughs> um, it's so odd. And again, everything is about Deb. And then to be like, for her to be like, hey, it's really odd. No, it's not. No, Try it's it not. again. Keep Figure going. It out. Yeah. You got you have, it. You have plenty of time to practice. Or maybe not. Hopefully. <laughs> okay. You have plenty of time, but not really. Who knows? I could pass any day. Right. <laughs> right. Freaking Deb. Right. <laughs> 47. Um, so it starts off her grandpa. Um, she's telling her grandpa, you're going the wrong way. He's on speakerphone with her mom in the car trying to make it to her new apartment. She says he pulls a 180 with mom's wheelchair and starts heading in the opposite direction. She's looking down at them from the courtyard facing window of the apartment. She said she specifically chose this apartment for its view or rather lack of view. She said the most desired units in the complex are the ones facing Sunset Boulevard looking right out into the bustling city. But there's no way she wanted those because it faces right by Nickelodeon Studios and plastered on the side is a big billboard with her picture on it. And she's just like with a fake smile, cheesy airbrush. It's just not her vibe. She doesn't want to look at it every day. So she's happy with a view of nothing. That's a good view to her. Which, listen, I'd rather have a view of nothing than to stare at a giant billboard. Right. Like, I can, yeah, imagine how uncomfortable. Um, so grandpa and mom get there. They chat for a few minutes. Um, they have some tea and then they head back down to the parking structure. Um, Grandpa's going to drive to lunch. So she asks her mom, where do you want to go? And in her mind, she says, please don't say it. Please don't say it. Please don't. Wendy's mom suggests. Sure, she told her. Um, Which she says, there's nothing really wrong with Wendy's. In fact, you know, there's a lot of great things at Wendy's, she says, like the Frosty. But the tenseness isn't coming from Wendy's. It's coming from the reason behind mom wanting to go to Wendy's. She says that she knows I have money and I could take her anywhere she'd like. And yet she chooses Wendy's not because she likes it, but because she can go and tell her friends. Oops, let me turn the page. Or fellow churchgoers how humble she is. How down to earth that even on a day as special as her birthday, which is today, (laughs) all she did was eat a side salad from a fast food restaurant. So she she says, um, the thing is, mom drives me nuts. She yearns to be pitied. She's got stage four cancer. She's already plenty pitied. She doesn't need to throw Wendy's on top of it. Um, So grandpa's pulling out of the parking structure and going by the stoplight. Right in front is the iCarly poster she dreads. And of course she's dreading it. And her mom is pulling out the camera. Right. (laughs) Like she's like, God, I don't want to see it. Her mom's like, here she is. Hashtag Deb. Hashtag Deb. That's it. <laughs> um, so she's pulling out the camera, and as she's taking the picture, the camera dropped out of her hands. And Jeanette says as she picked it back up to give to her mom, she spots her mom convulsing. Her hands are clenched into tight little balls, and her face is contorted. So that one eye is squinted shut, and her mouth is scrunched up entirely to one side. She is convulsing 
like the rocking of somebody in a mental hospital. She's horrified. She tells her grandpa something's wrong. He's trying to get through the street to be able to pull over. Finally, he's able to pull over in the Nickelodeon Studios parking lot where Carl, the friendly security guard, recognizes them and calls 911. By this point, she says her mom is frothing at the mouth and she's sure that she's dying. Um, Grandpa instructs her to get her to lay down. She unbuckles her seatbelt and puts her mom under her lap, which I just, my, my heart felt for her. I can't imagine, like, being in that position, seeing your mom like that. Um, she says the ambulance got there impressively fast. They put mom on the stretcher, buckled her in. She's still convulsing during this time. Uh, they wheel her onto the ambulance, and she's able to ride with her mom because one of the EMTs recognizes her. Um, so she says, it's one of those rare times I'm grateful to be recognized. And to comfort her mom, she grips her hand and squeezes it and um, tells her everything's going to be okay, even though um, she says, I'm not so sure, you know, I'm, even though I'm, I'm sure it's not okay. So it ends with them going into the, um, running to the hospital. The driver pulls right out of the parking lot. She says, as I'm squeezing my dying mother's hand and watching froth spill out of her mouth, we pass the poster again. I see my dead-eyed grin and my stupid fucking outdated hairstyle. My life is mocking me. That was the end of 47. Deb is not doing well. Is she dying? We will find out. <laughs> okay, so then 48 starts the day before Christmas Eve. At this point, Deb's been in the ICU for a week and she is unresponsive. They found out that she had a seizure as a result of her brain tumor, which is apparently a pretty regular occurrence. And then Jeanette says the doctor tells us tells us this as if the regularity makes it any less horrific, which I will say, like, I've been there where, like, the doctor tells you, like, well, it's normal for this to be the side effect. And you're like, that doesn't make me feel any better. Though. Right. Yeah, it didn't look really normal. Like, it me. doesn't, even though you consider it normal or common, does not mean that it's okay, you know? Yeah. Um... So then she says that her brothers and her all sit in the waiting room while her grandma and grandpa are in the ICU visiting with Deb and that they're all quiet. So finally, Jeanette offers to go and pick up some Burger King for everyone because she's desperate for a distraction. And food is what she's considering the perfect distraction at this point. Um, but all of her brothers say that they can't eat right now. And she says that she envies them and she envies that their sadness and stress tr translate to a lack of hunger. So then she says she goes to Burger King across the street and orders a Whopper and fries and a Coke Icy with some tacos and chicken sticks to go with it. And then she basically starts to describe that she notices that the ordering and the eating happen in rapid succession and both feel out of her control. And then afterward, her stomach feels distended. So she considers making herself throw up. And she said she's heard about this before, but she's never tried it. But now seems like a, as good a moment as ever to try so she shoves her Burger King bag into an overstuffed trash can and heads back to the hospital. She rushes through the doors, cuts through the lobby, hops on the elevator, excited about her new plan to make herself throw up. She rushes into the bathroom. She notices that her brothers are no longer in the waiting room on the way. And when she gets into the cold, hard stall, she says, I head to the two tall stall, the two stall bathroom and make sure no one else is in there. Then I kneel on the cold, hard, tiled hospital floor and shove my fingers down my throat. Ow. I poke the back of my throat. It hurts, but nothing comes out. I try again. Nothing. 
One more time, still nothing. So she finally gives up. She washes her hands. She recognizes that in her mind, she's now a failure at she is now a failure at not eating and also a failure at getting rid of the food that she does eat. So she hurries down the hallway back to her mom's room and her brother stops her and says she's awake. So she rushes over to Deb's bedside and she says that her mom looks up at her and says, Net, what? Just make me laugh. Oh, yeah. No, no, you're good. Says, basically, Net, the boys said you stopped at Burger King. You don't need to be eating that stuff. There's a lot of grams of fat in a Whopper. Which makes Jeanette beam. And she says, a tear trickles down my cheek. Mom's going to live. For now, she's going to live. I know, Mama. I know. I did get it without mayo. She sighs. Still. 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 (laughs) Still. Still. So, once again, you have Deb's concerned about her eating. You've got Jeanette now trying to make herself throw up in order to lose or get rid of what she is eating. And you again have Jeanette recognizing mom looks sickly. She's dying. She's been unresponsive for over a week. She's finally awake. But mom's still there because she's still criticizing my eating. Which, like, it's not funny, but it's just funny because I'm picturing, like, the sigh of relief. Like, mom has been unconscious for, did you say a week it was? Yeah. And then, oh, my God, she's awake. And can you, like, just, I'm picturing Deb, like, slowly waking up. And she's like, where is Nat? And they're like, oh, she went to Burger King. And then she was, like, starting to come to. And she's like, Nat, why do we talk about those whoppers? Like, <laughs> I think there's more problems right. going on that you need <laughs> right. to worry about than right. a whopper, trans fat, all the things. Right. But hashtag Deb. Hashtag Deb. Um, so 49 goes back to iCarly. So she says, Miranda's crying. I'm crying. We're both crying. We can't stop crying. For me, it's not that iCarly's ending. It's not that today is our last day of taping. That I'm fine with, even excited about, definitely ready for. Even though I'm wary of starting my spinoff, I'm glad to at least be saying goodbye to this project that makes me feel like I'm living every day in the Groundhog Day movie, doing the same thing over and over again. But she says the reason she's crying is, is, again, not because it's over. She's ready for it to be over. But um, because she doesn't know what will happen with her friendship with Miranda. They've gotten so close, like sisters. But um, she says, but without the passive aggression and weird tensions. Um, She says their friendship has always been so easy, so pure. And they're sad. They're having to leave. Um. She said, this feeling of sadness and ending is really common on sets. You get to know the people around you so intimately because you're around them more than you're around your family for a period of time. And then you aren't anymore. And little by little, you realize you start talking less and less to the people you thought you were so intimate with. So she's worried that um, basically her friendship won't continue after this or that it won't be as strong. Um she says, I don't like knowing people in the context of things. Oh, that's the person I worked out with or I work out with. That's the person I'm in the book club with. That's the person I did this with. Um, she says, because once the context ends, so does the friendship. So she says she yearns to know the people I love deeply and intimately without context, without boxes. And I yearn for them to know me that way, too. And as much as I think I know Miranda deeply and intimately, I don't like that I know her through the context of iCarly because it's ending and I don't want our friendship to end with it. 
That's I think we can mean. all relate to that. Yeah. Where, like, you put your friendships and your relationships into categories. And you're like, well, when this thing that we do is over, then what? I right. mean, I think we've all been there. Yeah. For sure. So then in 50, we go back to basically her relationship with Joe. And basically the chapter starts with Joe saying, are you sure? And Jeanette saying, I'm positive. And Joe says, now's not the time to throw us away. Now's when you need us the most. And you basically come to find out that essentially Jeanette is looking to finally end her relationship or the thing that resembles a relationship with Joe. And she basically explains to him that the reason why she's attempting to end it is because she doesn't want to get too attached. And when Joe questions, why don't you want to be attached? Isn't being attached to someone a good thing? Isn't that what love is? Jeanette basically explains, I'm just worried about being attached while my mom's, you know. And you come to find out that Jeanette can't say it out loud, but that basically they've been told that Deb's health is rapidly declining for a while. And it's long enough for the family to start questioning their use of the word rapidly. And then she says, you know, she's still wheelchair bound. She's weaker than she's ever seen her. Cancer spread to just about everywhere. The end is near. And Jeanette then goes on to explain to Joe, like, since I'm more attached to her than anyone, I worry that all the attachment toward her will just pile on to whoever I'm with. And Joe says, that's fine. I'll want the pile. Pile it on. It's like, read the room again, Joe. <laughs> right. Um, which is obviously not the response that she was hoping for. And so she starts to kind of backpedal. And Jeanette says, maybe I misspoke. I just think it's a distraction from what I need to be focusing on, which is family. So Joe and Jeanette go back and forth, back and forth. And finally, Joe basically just asks, then, um, or anyway, so then, wait. Okay, right here. So then basically, Joe just finally comes right out and says, look, if you don't love me anymore, you can just say it. I can take it. His voice cracking on the last part. And so then Jeanette says, but I do love you. And Joe questions them, why are you breaking up with me? And she says, Joe asks this as he takes a big bite of his sausage, an obnoxiously big bite. He's got vegan mayonnaise smeared all over his lip. It's disgusting. And Jeanette says, maybe this is why. Maybe it's not about the mom stuff at all. Maybe I'm just over it. His chewing bothers me most of the time. The baby voice he overuses makes me cringe. His jokes aren't funny. He lacks ambition. He drinks too much. He has anger issues. Our age gap no longer feels cool to me and instead feels a little embarrassing for both of us. And then she says, I wonder what laundry list of flaws he's racked up about me at this point. What could he say? I'm selfish. I'm possessive. I'm not social enough. I don't like his friends. I'm too judgmental. I don't give him enough attention. Joe's still chewing the same bite. He's been chewing the same bite for a goddamn minute. Why does he not just take smaller bites? There, there's an easy solve to this, Joe. <laughs> Which again has me going... The seven things I, I hate, hate about you. Yeah. You yeah. chew too loud. You got nail on your face. Um, so then basically Joe questions, well, if you still love me, why are you breaking up with me? And it's at this point that Jeanette just basically begins to realize that all of her patience is gone. Something switches in her. And it's that she's basically, and it's that she's realizing she's in a vegan dive bar smelling beer. She doesn't care to drink. With basketball and football games on that she doesn't care to watch, blaring excessive amounts of TV time or amounts of TVs around her. She's sitting on a bar stool with uneven legs opposite a man who she no longer loves. 
And she just says, I am numb. I am done. And she says to Joe, look, I just am. And you come to realize that basically she's just had enough. She's fed up with Joe. She's had enough. It's not cool anymore to her. She's ready to move on. She's over it. Yeah. You go, girl. Uh, 51. So we find out that she and Miranda are still close. That the ending of Carly did not damage their friendship. Um, I think she said there was no re no need to worry about context. Our friendship has gotten stronger since iCarly ended. Um, so she says they hang out three or four times a week. And usually one of the nights is a sleepover, usually at Miranda's house. But this particular evening, they decided to stay at a hotel and hang out, watch movies. So they left the hotel. Miranda's driving. I think at this point, she has not said that she's ever started driving Jeanette. So Miranda, I think, is the only one who can drive, I assume. Um, so they're driving. They're having fun. She says they're playing Katy Perry's Roar in the background. Um, when her phone rings and she says, my phone rings, mommy. Hello? Net, net, help me. Whoa, 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 slow down. What's the matter? Help. I'm scared. What are you scared of? They're taking me back for my surgery. So then she gives background that this surgery had been planned for a while. Um, and it is due to a breast implant that um, started leaking. So the doctor needed to go in and clean it up clean up the leakage, repair the implant. And basically they were told it was a fairly easy procedure. So she tries to calm her mom down, assure her it's going to be fine. To which her mom tells her something's not right, Net, something's not right. She said she can hear the nurse in the background telling her mom, ma'am, there's no phones allowed here. And her mom is pleading with her, please not do something. To which she's like, what do you want me to do? And her mom just says, I don't know, I need you. So um, I think Nett's concerned. She says her mom sounds panic-stricken. Um, she says there's a trembling to her voice that I've never heard before. It terrifies me. Dad takes the phone um, and he assures her, reassures her. You know, she's just emotional. She's on the hospital bed. They're rolling her for surgery now. I'm with her. Everything's fine. Jeanette asks if, if she should come. And when Dad says no, the mom says yes um but dad assures her no it's fine they'll be done by the time you get here anyway it's gonna be quick totally harmless and i'll just call you afterward so she goes cool i turn up roar turns up the radio and miranda keeps driving and miranda asks her if everything's okay and she says yeah it's nothing and miranda doesn't press um so should they drive in silence for a few minutes and then um, we start talking again about whatever, something's off, I can feel it in my gut. We stop for gas, then keep driving. My phone rings again, and it's her dad. She asks how it went, and he tells her it's mom, she's not okay. Apparently her body couldn't withstand the surgery, and she, I'm sure, is just like horrified and confused. And, you know, asking what, I, you know, I thought it was going to be harmless, like you assured me. And he tells her that her mom is in a coma and that she's not doing well and she should get to the hospital right away. So she says, I hang up the phone numb. I tell Miranda what's happened. She offers to drive me to the hospital. I say, okay. I stare out the window. Miranda stops at a red light. This is feeling like we're getting close to the end for Deb. Oh, for sure. 
It's definitely feeling that way. But it's also feeling like, are you, and I guess this is hard because, like, now we've, like, read, obviously, <laughs> through the end of the before. But, like, when you read this the first time, were you also picking up on, like, like, I almost feel like Jeanette was in, like, almost somewhat of denial for longer than what I would have thought. Of her mom's, like, yeah decline. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, too. Do you or, know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I think, don't know if denial is the right word, but, like... Like, she didn't want to acknowledge how close it really was getting. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting, like, when he said apparently her body couldn't withstand the surgery. Like, she was riddled with cancer at this. It just seems like, I don't know, crazy things happen every day. But wouldn't that be something you take into it? I don't know. Maybe they did. I mean, obviously they thought she was stable enough to go through it and then couldn't, you know. On one hand, though, is this sounds awful. But if you know she's dying... What is fix is is fixing? Well, it's the whole quality versus quantity. You know, right? I mean, when you get to the end, I mean, it becomes a matter of like, do you want to buy yourself more time, even if that time? I know, but like the you know, breast or do you want quality of right. life for a shorter amount of time? You know, I don't know. I just felt like was that priority? I don't know. Maybe I'm just, I don't know. You know. Um, okay. So then, fifty two goes back to like that. Basically, the quote-unquote scene it's a book but from the prologue where it opens with Jeanette saying mommy did you hear me I said I'm so skinny right now I'm finally down to 89 pounds and at this point again remember from the prologue she's so desperate to wake her mom up she's been in a coma um and that she basically says she's grateful that since mom's been in a coma she's stopped binging in fact I've eaten almost nothing I've been losing weight rapidly And so now you come to find out that basically she's sitting at her mom's bedside and, um, you know, uh, basically her and her brothers are all there, but they rarely say anything to one another because they don't need to. They just sit around mom's body and we all stare at her every now and then she'll glance at the clock. Um, and she says at this point it's two 30, two hours since we were told mom has less than 48 hours to live. I wonder how much time she has left. Where her lifetime falls within those 48 hours. Does she have 44? 10? 2? Every moment feels so slow and so heavy. I'm trying to hold on to each moment, but they just keep ticking on. I've never felt worse. Which is one of those things where, like, if you've been around when hospice was called in at the end of someone's life, you know, those last hours, it really does get to a point where you're like where are we at here? You know, like, because they can't give you a timeline. And so it is like, you know, oh, I think it'll be this week. Oh, I think it'll be within the next couple days. Oh, I think it'll be within the next 24 hours. And you're like, but, but where in the 24 hours are we landing? Yeah, you know, like, week. yeah. Yeah. So then at this point, um, basically she says they hear a noise. They hear mom speak and all of them whip their heads around. She says, basically what the fuck mom spoke she feebly barely inaudibly spoke but still she spoke so they come to find out marcus her brother thinks that her mom's saying that she's gonna die and he gets very defensive no mom don't say that well here they come to find out she's trying to say canada dry the water and so marcus runs down the hallway to get a canada dry from the vending machine he brings it back pops it open and tilts it up to mom's mouth 
And every it makes everyone smile. This is good, right? Mom's speaking some version of words and slurping down Canada dry. This means she's going to be okay, right? And Jeanette says she's desperate to know. She's clinging to know. But I'll cling if I have to. I can't let her go. So then a week and a half goes by. Um, or a few weeks have gone by. Mom's out of the ICU wing. And has been in a regular wing. Basically so much for the 48 hours. And she says sometimes she thinks she wants to say take that to the doctor until he assures her and her brothers, which he does often, that this does not mean she will have some sort of miraculous recovery, that he does not want them getting their hopes up. And as much as she wishes she could argue with them, she can't. She says, I see it. She shits in a bag and breathes from a machine. This isn't going to turn around. And so then she says that for the first week of her hospitalization, her brothers and her stayed at a hotel nearby while they waited for her to die. But then she didn't. So that after a week, they checked out of the hotel and life went back to normal or as normal as it could be. Dustin stopped taking sick days and went back to work. Marcus flew home to Jersey. Grandpa and dad alternate work shifts so someone can be with mom most nights. While Scott stayed with her during the days. And Jeanette visited her each day after she got off work from the spinoff, which had now started filming. And she says that... Um, Basically, I'd go from slinging a butter sock, butter sock and shouting my cheesy lines on the brightly cover, colored, overlit salmon cat soundstage to sitting in a hospital bedside chair with outdated upholstery surrounded by the smell of sanitization and the feel of death. And she says, today is no different. I just finished shooting a scene where I confront some mean school bullies and slap somebody with a ham sandwich. And now here I am watching a nurse change my mother's shit bag while she side eyes me. And I know what's coming and it's pure hell. And basically, you come to find out that this nurse that's changing her mom's quote-unquote shit bag <laughs> is basically trying to ask, are you Sam Puckett? At which point, Sam just straight up denies it and says, no, I'm not. And then the nurse says, well, you look just like her, spitting image. Do you mind if I take a picture to show my niece? She's not going to believe how much you look at her. And Sam says, no, I'm not taking a picture, which to me is it's like, her. read the damn room to this nurse, though. Again, it's like this woman is sitting by the bedside of a dying woman, whether she is or is not. Do you think you should ask? Like, and then can I take a picture of you sitting at the bedside of this dying woman? Which also like, is that like, like a HIPAA violation? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I just, which I am one to be like, listen, you might never see that celebrity again. So ask for the damn picture while you see him. I don't think not in a, an ICU yeah, hospital yeah. bed. Like, that's not like, the time the or the place. Yeah. Right. Um, so then she says she looks at her mom and it's beginning to look crazy or seem crazy to her how much, uh, cancer has changed her shape. She says she used to have curves, all four foot 11 of her. She had thighs, a bit of an ass, boobs too, small waist, narrow shoulders. Um, and now she says now her stomach is distended. Her boobs have shriveled. Her legs are twigs. Her arms look longer in an almost monkey like way. They just dangle at her sides. She looks less human to me. And then suddenly she says her mom basically blurts out a phrase that resembles I love you. And that she said so many brain tumors that are so big in size that she's all but brain dead. And yet somehow she still remembers how to sort of say I love you. It makes it makes her heart physically hurt. And then she says mom tries saying I love you again. Her head bobbing around and no connection behind her eyes. I bit I bite my lip until it bleeds. And then she says, I try looking at mom while I'm here at the hospital with her to savor her, to remember her. But at the same time, I don't want to remember her like this. So every time I look at her within moments, I look away. 
And she basically goes on to say that she forces herself to grab her hands and tell her that she loves her and that I'm here. And then all of a sudden her phone pings with a text from Colton. He's asking if she wants to get away for a few days and take a road trip to San Francisco. He knows she's struggling and thinks that this will be a good way to take her mind off things. And so she checks in with Grandpa to see if Mom is still at a stable place for at least the next few days. To which Grandpa says that she is. And she says she takes one last quick look at Mom while she spews some gym spews some gibberish and she says i can't get out of this hospital fast enough i get up kiss her on the forehead and leave again like you can tell okay it's a lot we're at the end it's a a lot for her but we're also at the end yeah and at this point we've been at the end like it's just ready for everyone Yeah. yeah yeah She thought the end would be, what did she say, like, so much for 48 hours, you know, she Weeks ago, on. when they were yeah. for 48 hours, weeks ago at this point, which again, like, I've been there in that scenario where you're told, oh, I don't think he'll make it through the week. Three weeks later, here we are, you know, like, yeah. and on one hand, I've also been there, and it's going to sound horrible if you haven't been in this situation, but I've also been there where, like, on one hand, you're like, I totally get where she's like. I'm trying to remember every little detail. I'm trying to savor every moment. I'm trying to make sure that I'm here and I'm present and I'm not distracted. And in the next breath, it's like, when the hell is this going to be over? This is dragging on. Like, I'm trying to prepare myself and it's never ending. Right. I get that, like, both of those emotions happen at the same time. Yeah. They do. Um, So 53 picks up where, you know, Colton asks her to go to the trip to San Francisco. So... They're going, they're driving in Colton's Dodge Charger. We're reminded that Colton um, is, well, I guess I'll say this first. So Colton suggests that they pick up some alcohol to take back to the hotel. She says she's never had alcohol before, um, more so because of how scared of it she was after seeing Joe and his issues with it, more so than uh, anything about her being Mormon. Uh, But she says if there's anyone she'd try drinking with, it's Colton because he's warm, energetic, and has a way of making everyone around him feel accepted. Plus, he's gay, so I don't have to worry about any sexual tension. That's always nice. So they crap crap open a bottle. They crap it open in her mom's shit bag. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) We crack open the bottle the second we get to the hotel room and pour shots worth into two plastic courtesy cups from the bathroom, and they open... Sour Patch Kids to suck on after they take the shot. So, um, Colton counts it down. One, two, three. They take the shot, to which Jeanette says she feels nothing. So they take another shot and another shot and another shot. And she said, before we can determine how the fourth shot feels, we've jumped onto the beds, played hide and seek in the hallways, and snuck into the pool even though it was closed. Uh, let's see... Um, so she says the next morning we wake up energized, mascara smudged all over, um, still wearing yesterday's outfit. And she declares that was one of the best nights of my life. And Colton agrees. Um, they debate on taking another shot the next morning, but they ultimately decide to wait until nighttime. So they have something to look forward to. And she says, and my God, am I looking forward to it? I can't believe I've waited so long to get drunk. It's an incredible one of a kind feeling. Um, she says when her she's drunk, all her worries disappear, the hating of her body, the shame about her eating habits, having to cope with her dying mother, starring in a show she's humiliated to be a part of. 
She says it all just goes away. Um, and then, then in the end, she says, when I'm drunk, I'm less anxious, less inhibited, inhibited, less worried about what mom would want or think of me. In fact, when I'm drunk, the voice of mom, ju- mom judging me evaporates completely. I can't wait for tonight. I mean, listen, it's coming at a horrible time. I get it. But also, like, I'm glad that she's able to find some sort of, like, escape from what she's been putting up with. Yeah, I just don't know that that's healthy. I mean, listen, who am I to say? I have plenty of unhealthy habits and things I do. But, yeah. I don't know that it's healthy, but also, like, it's not a regular thing for her at this point. Right. You know That's I mean? her first, like, yeah. She needed, I think she probably, like, needed a break. She needed a minute to, like, disconnect from yeah. what she'd she been needed dealing it out. with. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Now, if it became a daily occurrence for, you know, years on end, sure, I would have a different stance. But do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I get it. So then 54 basically starts with her being woken up and clearly her head is throbbing. She rubs her temples. This must be what it feels like to be hungover. Um, She realizes that it's her contractor and she forgot that her contractor was coming to work on her house, her first home. Um, She says she, you come to find out she bought a house three months ago. Everyone was telling her it would be a good investment. And plus the idea was exciting to her. It would be free of must and mold and hoarding. It would represent how far she's come. So she's clearly also now trying to, like, turn the page. Now it's hitting her, like, mom's dying. I'm going to turn the page. I'm going to have a new chapter. Um, And she says she got a beautiful three-story hillside house that was turnkey so I could move in immediately and not worry about having to do any sort of remodeling. I even bought the display furniture so I wouldn't have to think about decorating the place. Um... But then within weeks, she learned the entire infrastructure needed to be dug out and replaced. A pipe broke. The shower leaked. The kitchen sank and one of the toilets clogged. The deck chipped. A stair broke. Um, The thing was not turnkey, basically. And so she's got her contractor and his whole team there working. And again, she's super hungover. They're slamming the doors. Um, And then all of a sudden, she gets another knock at the door. And here it's her driver. And you come to find out she's supposed to fly out to New York tomorrow And this driver's here to pick her up. She tells them to wait a second. She needs to run upstairs and grab a jacket. Um, And she's basically trying to debate whether or not she'll need this for the trip. Is it cold right now in New York? Toss the jacket aside and opt for a hoodie instead. I shove it in my bag, shut the lid. So she's scrambling to get ready, scrambling to basically recover from this hangover. She's got the contractor going on. She's clearly on sensory overload and her phone rings. She swipes it open, and it's her dad. And he says, you should get down here. She says, really? He says, yeah. And she says, are you sure? Because I'm supposed to leave for a flight right now. The car is downstairs waiting for me. And she says she can hear her dad take a breath on the other end of the phone, and he sounds stressed. He says, where are you going? She says, New York, remember? He says, for what? And she says, the Nickelodeon Worldwide Day of... And she said, I stopped realizing how ridiculous the sentence sounds. I don't know, something I'm supposed to be hosting, so I really shouldn't go. And dad says, they say it'll happen today. At which point Jeanette freezes. She's shocked, but not for long. She says she's at this point, she's experienced this moment many times before. Somebody tells her her mom's going to die, and then she doesn't. And so she goes back to tugging on the zipper of her suitcase and says, yeah, but 
I start knowing dad will know what I mean. And her dad says, but what? And she, um, she says then she realizes that she always forgets that her dad never knows what she means. And so she explains to him, but people have said this so many times before. If this is just another false alarm, I really shouldn't head down. Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon's going to be pissed if I bail on this thing. Which also, I know there's like a lot of employers who aren't even Nickelodeon that like need to see a copy of the obituary and need things. But like. That's awful. You're going to be pissed? Like find another damn host. Pick another celebrity out of the crowd and ask them to read the teleprompter. You know? Um. So anyway, so then the driver's knocking on her door. She really needs to go. Her dad swallows and says, you really need to come down. And she says, fine. And remember, she's still hungover. So she says, she hangs up just as she finally gets the zipper shut. She's sweating by this point. I stand up, cross over to my bed, and sit at the floor of it for just a moment to try and collect myself before heading down to see my mom for possibly the last time I ever will. I'm trying to process this intense reality, but I'm really struggling to because... Hammer, 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 drill, 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 knock, knock, knock. So she's got contractors. She's hung over. Her dad's on the phone. All the things. And is this it? Like it's terrible timing. It, like, there's been false alarms. Is this it? And her dad sounds confident. Yeah, this is it. Happening today. Yeah. So 55 picks up. She's in the couch, sitting on the couch, looking at her mom. She's in her childhood home, what she calls... The old garbage grove hoarder house. She said um, the couch was removed to make um, enough space for mom's bed her for her hospice care. Um, she says mom has been in hospice care for the past three weeks, so this is not an unusual sight. Though she's typically sitting up, but she's laying down now and her breath is shallower. Um, more shallow, she says, than she's ever heard it before. Um, she says Scotty and Dustin are sitting nearby. They're silent from the effects of emotional exhaustion over the years. She says that she's surprised that none of them are crying, but it's like they have no tears left. She said, we've been through at least a dozen dress rehearsals for our mother's death. We remember the VHS tape. That's what she says. (laughs) Um, She says the phone pings. It's Nickelodeon reaching out to say no worries at all about missing um, the work event. And she's thankful. Text them back, you know, thanking them. Then another Text comes through from who she calls current guy that she met on Twitter. Um, she says, let's see. I'm trying to see. Oh, that she, yeah, she describes it as um, he's the guy that I'm currently stringing along. Um, she says he's wonderfully sweet and thoughtful and romantic, but she doesn't love him. She says, maybe it's because she doesn't have space in her heart to love anyone with her mom dying. Or maybe that's basically just an excuse, you know, using grief as an excuse um, to blame a genuine lack of connection, as she calls it. Um, She says that she's discovering how powerful of a tool it is to not love someone because loving someone is vulnerable and sensitive and tender. Um, She said, if I love someone, I'd start to disappear. It's so much easier to just do googly eyes and fond memories and inside jokes for a few months, run the second thing, start to get real, then repeat the cycle with someone new. And she basically says that's where she's at with current guy. She says the distraction's been nice, but she's ready to replace him. So she whips out her phone, to which he asks what she's up to. And she responds, hey, I'm really sorry, but I just can't do this right now. 
my mom's gonna die and I really need some time to just be alone. I hope you can understand. Sends it, thinks it'll be done, only to see that he has texted her back and said, don't say that, boo. Your mom's not going to die. Read the room, buddy. Right. She literally is dying. Right. Uh, so she says he ignored the rest of the message. She rolled her eyes at that. I've told him 12 times that mom's dying of cancer. But he acts like she has a sprained ankle. He has no concept of loss. Um, and she says she feels like the world is divided into two types of people. Those who know loss and then people who don't. And she said the people who don't, she just disregards them. Um, but she does say she's in a constant state of irritation these days. She just doesn't want to deal with people. She's frustrated. She's frustrated with this current guy. What a, like, a dumbass thing to say. I'm sorry. Oh, don't say that. It's like, no, she literally is dying. Right. Like, this is not, like, an irrational fear. She's literally... Here, see the pic. Right. Here's a selfie with my dying mom. Right. Um, she says... She sets her phone face down on the arm of the couch. She looks at Dustin, then Scott, then Mom... Her breathing looks so strenuous. She's struggling to hang on. I hate this. Mom takes a sharp breath in, then out. The hospice nurse locks eyes with Dad, gives a slight nod. Dad looks at us. Mom's gone. She said, they're all numb. We don't cry. We just sit in silence. She said, finally, she picks up a phone. Uh, finally, she picks up her phone, to which she sees hundreds of messages have poured in. Everyone has heard. She's not sure how. No idea how that happened. That's crazy. Maybe the one guy. Current guy? I don't know. Just a thought. Um, but everyone's heard it's breaking news. So she goes. <laughs> she texts back current guy. She stares at his last text, which said, don't say that, boo. Your mom's not going to die. To which she texts him back. She just did. And that is where. That's the end of the before. That is where we end this week's reading. That is the end of the before. Her mom has passed away. Her mom has passed away. That was a lot. Of, it was a lot. Of, this was like, I feel like the heaviest section we've had yet. Yeah. A lot of heaviness and a lot of like how she says. Like, we've had rehearsals of mom's death. Like, it's just, like... Yeah. Felt like she's been, been preparing for herself for it. And, like, now finally it's happened. And she's gone. And so, next week, hopefully we pick up... I haven't read ahead. I learned my lesson. <laughs> so, I haven't read ahead. Uh, but next week, hopefully we pick up and kind of see what the, what the after looks like. What the after of the mom's death looks like for Jeanette and her family. Yes. Awesome. So next week, for next week, we're reading 56 through 75. Yes. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. Have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful weekend. And we will see you right back here to have episode four of Book Club next week. Bye, guys.